This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. So good to be back. Dr. Matt here, along with Jeffrey, Liam Simpson. Are you being and truthful? And, of course, Terry South. Uh, it is It is good to get back. But we had a week and a half break. Oh, it's so tough. I know. To come back. Uh, sleeping in every day. Yesterday? Yeah. Flashbacks of being unemployed. <gasps> really? What? My whole family, my wife went to work, my kids went back to school. I'm sitting there like, Ooh. what am I going to do with my Did day? Did you wake up with cold, like a like cold sweat, just hot no, flashes just, of just about an hour Vietnam. into it. I'm like, this isn't as fun as it used to be. Yeah. Mm. I need to go back to work. I've been away for a while. Oh, how interesting is I, that? I yeah. Need, I need to radio today. You didn't watch uh, Netflix and put on your stuffing pants? No. I mean, I watched, but Did stuffing? you ever, remember those stuffing? Were they stuffing pants? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it was from... Uh, Stouffer's? Yeah, Stovetop. 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 I have new food-related clothing. That's coming up. Fantastic. Well, I because I was wondering what I would wear without having more food-related clothing. Is this edible clothing? No. no Can I, that's different. Oh. That's a different show. That's a different show. Uh, man alive. So much to talk about today. Sadness uh, in the LDS Church. President Thomas S. Monson, 16th uh, president of the LDS Church, died last night about 10 o'clock. Um, by the way, spent more than, I think, like 54 years as, a, as an apostle, one of the 12 apostles of the LDS faith. And... Uh, He's really been at this since he was 23. Yeah. At age 23, uh, he was um, called to be a bishop of a little of his faith group, his ward, they call it in the LDS church. And uh, since then, he's been going at it nonstop. I mean, it's sad. 90 years old, an incredible, incredible man. You know, I read something that I did not know before about him, and I didn't know that, that you could do this. But what? while he was serving as an apostle, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, he got his master's degree in business administration. Well, it's isn't that that's weird? But he was so young, yeah, right. So he was called. I think he was the youngest apostle 30, called 36. in this century. Yeah, thirty-six yeah. years old, and so he at thirty-six, you still might need a master's degree. You know what? I I read the timeline of all of his accomplishments over his life just briefly this morning, and uh, it was kind of a reality check for me. It's like, oh, I I don't know that I've accomplished all that. <laughs> like, what, what have if, you done what with have your I life? Done? He, there's so many stories in his life about him individually going out and ministering to people all the way through even his 80s. Uh, I remember a story told to me about my wife's grandfather. Um, in the middle of a meeting, President Thomas Monson was in a meeting with all of the leaders of the church and had this prompting come over him that he needed to go visit my wife's grandfather, who was not well. He was dying of a brain-related issue. And um, in the middle of the meeting, President Monson asked to be excused and leaves and goes straight to my grand my grandfather-in-law's house uh, and arrives right after he had passed away. Wow. And was one of the first people there to to basically care for the widow. Mm. And he there's like there's literally hundreds of stories of him following prompting after prompting. And so one of the big points of his ministry was always you minister one by one, which was, you know, a, become a great message of the church is always look after the one and 
So uh, the LDS Church uh, has lost its its president, its leader. It, there's a very organized way that the, they then choose their next leader. And next in line would be um, President or uh, President Russell Nelson, who mm-hmm. is currently the leader of the Twelve Apostles. And so historically, he would eventually then be um, – I don't know what the word would be – not nominated, but basically take the seat of and the it, prophet. As you mentioned during the break, he's actually even older than President Monson was. Ninety-three years old. Wow. And a lot of people are like, oh, the, the church, they've just got all these old people. They don't – but I, I just sat in a meeting with hundreds of thousand people or so with President Russell Nelson. He's spry, he's, he's sharp. young, sharp as a whip. So I don't know if whips are sharp, but he's that sharp. Can we? Can I share a lighter story yeah. briefly about President Monson? Well, yeah. it's not really about President Monson. I went to a family camp uh, up here near Sundance. Family and, camp? Yes. And his family, it's owned by BYU, actually, Aspen Grove. Yeah. His family happened to be there the same week as ours, and so he was going to be speaking at a devotional. Well, I noticed on the ping pong sign-up sheet, because I wanted to be in the tournament, that there was a Thomas Monson. So I thought, oh, (laughs) maybe I'm going to be playing the prophet of the LDS Church. Turns out it was uh, his son. His son, Tommy. Yeah, and uh, he uh, he beat me in ping pong. I lost to the prophet's son in ping pong. Did... uh... Did he like rub it in your face, neener neener? What did he? Did he, he, take he it, like, like took my face and like rubbed it into <laughs> you know the into the grass. Take and, that, yeah. you little punk! That's <sighs> neat that you went to family camp. Terry, did you ever go to family camp? No. Okay, it's delightful. It you, sounds wonderful. It's a it's a truckload of money, but uh, you pay to wa- have other people watch your kids while you can go off and do all the fun yeah, things you want to do. They have a pool. It's up by Sundance and there's ping ski pong resort. Apparently. Ping pong. Well, yeah. And there's a major ping pong tournament up there with a lot of celebrities. Right. Uh, well, 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 again. Regional celebrities. The church, the LDS church, mourns the passing of its president, President Thomas S. Monson. A lot of news out of Utah. Um, Pre- or Orrin Hatch, also friend, by the way, of President Monson. Orrin Hatch says he's not going to run. He's not doing it. Really? For what? Really? His eighth term? That, I mean, there is a point. Eight. Would it, would it have been his eighth senatorial? Sure. At I mean, some point, he'll just turn into a pile of dust. So please leave before that. But so that now, everyone's jumping on the bit saying, hey, that means all of a sudden now Mitt Romney may be in the race. And Mitt Romney, one of the the loudest uh, you know, people to speak out against President Trump. So, so do you think Trump will be supporting him? I doubt it. Really? No. Don't they need more Republican senators? It's coming from Utah. It's going to be, I mean, unless short of an Alabama fiasco, it's going to be a Republican. But now uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon is like, hmm, we got to find us a nationalist candidate out of Utah. He's tried. The people he's contacted have turned him down. But people need to realize Mitt Romney is is immensely iconic in Utah. Mm-hmm. Good hair. Great the Olympics. Hair, and he came and saved the Olympics is kind of the story. Um, he pushed me out of the way. He pushed you out. Of, well, yeah. What? Like Trump pushed uh, some leader from like Sweden or Finland or something out some of the way. Some small country. Yeah. Just kind of. Well, he. But that was kind of. That was important, though, because the president of the United States needs to be in front in the picture. Oh, that's true. It's a good point. Now. Mitt pushed me out of the way at the Olympics because he was late to start the opening ceremonies for the the first medal ceremony. You were trying to block it. It's not an easy thing to do, by the way. 
to, to push Terry South out of the way. No, no, no. He's because he's solid as a rock. No, NFL Hall of Famer Steve Young. He also did it the next night when he was the master. Okay, of so but what does this tell you? I was kind of in the way. You're always in the way. I was there. trying to get back to the supply shed and get some batteries. Do or people something, see so. you and see a challenge? Like, I don't I wonder if I can I push know. this guy. I remember over. the first time just, I met you, I thought I've got to push that guy. <laughs> I'm just walking. Can you guys quit trying to hit me? Oh, I want to push him. Good hair though. Up close, really good hair. Really good hair. Well, and so uh, this could be a really big deal because what if a, in a very red state by a landslide elects their guy and their guy happens to be anti-Trump. Huh. Now you have an anti-Trump senator who maybe could be the very first senator that's not dying or on their way out <laughs> right. that has enough voice and power to push back on this president. Yeah. This is a big deal. But it'll confuse people who will think he's somehow – Romney somehow joining the resistance. He's still a conservative. Oh, yeah. Right? He's not well, going to vote. But for- many conservatives say he's not a conservative. He's a rhino. He's kind well, of a middle he's, – he's a liberal conservative, we'll a progressive. See. Well, and if you saw Star Wars The Last Jedi, you will see the numbers of Spoilers. the resistance dwindling yeah. rapidly. It gets down to just a handful. Hey. But it makes it easy for casting. And I like how you brought no that into a political story. <laughs> well, really, the story of Star Wars is, is very, politics. It's very political. I mm. mean, it all started with a trade war. It's a trade dispute. Wow. A lot of racist characters representing all the sides. So Thank it's you, much George like Lucas. Washington. You're talking yeah. about Akbar. Not like way like the the horrible movies that no one wants to acknowledge exist. It started oh, with a trade disagreement. The Star Wars holiday special could be okay. It's in there. Okay, let's see what else we can turn into a Star Wars segue. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else is going on? We should be paying attention to President Donald Trump on Tuesday night responded to North Korea leader Kim Jong Un's latest provocation, writing on Twitter that he too has a nuclear button. He goes, "Will someone please, uh, will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his." Oh man! And my button works. Trump wrote on Twitter, "The president. My button's bigger than your button." The pre- president's comment comes <laughs> just after Kim talked about having a button of his own. Now, if you think about it, if we want to keep a tally of buttons on the president's desk, he there is a report he has a button he pushes to get his coke. Mm. Really? That's next to apparently this button that he has for missiles. Can I get one of those? I don't know. A cherry one, though? No. It was one of the first New York Times uh, articles about kind of the inside workings. Interesting. And they said he has a button on his desk in the Oval Office. He just taps it and they bring him a coat. No, I heard that none of those buttons actually work. They just yeah. light up a button right. on someone else's desk. Yeah. And then they know they've got to go talk to the president. I read a thing yesterday that uh, one solution to all the angst around the presidency is make it into sort of like the Truman Show. Oh. Where he kind of has all these things that make it look like he does something and nothing actually oh, happens. Oh, interesting. The, Trump, so, the Trumpin show. As <laughs> someone who is constantly pressing buttons, I've got to say having buttons at work really boosts morale. There you go. Does More it? buttons. I love pushing buttons because things happen. Yeah, that's when you get pushed back. Speaking of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has reportedly ordered that a long-closed border hotline with South Korea be reopened. Officials in Seoul confirmed the news, which was announced Wednesday by a North Korean ah. official. Uh, the whole point is South Korea is negotiating with North Korea to get them to send a team to the Winter Olympics. 
Right. They feel like if, if North Korea sends a team, the North Korea won't launch any missiles during the Olympics because they'll have a team in the Olympics. Oh, it's like mm. security. Yeah, basically. But no, it's not interesting. That compete, but. Did you know that every day, I guess, for years, the South Koreans have been calling twice a day the North Koreans, yeah. and they never answer the phone? Wow. And then today was the first time the North Koreans called the South Koreans wow. to have a talk, and then they had a 20-minute talk. But, like, well. what's that like to answer that phone? Hello? <laughs> Yes, it's the North Koreans. Hi. How are you? As we were talking about Mitt Romney on Tuesday, uh, is there a, the talk after Orrin Hatch decide, or announces that he's going he's not to not run it. again? Mitt Romney changed his Twitter location from Massachusetts to Holiday, Utah, just hours after Senator Hatch made his announcement. Really? Does that matter? The, is the, this just CNN jumping the, on something? The move fuels speculation that Romney will announce a bid later this year to replace Hatch. Uh, a source close to Romney told the Daily Beast on Tuesday that he will likely delay a formal announcement out of deference to Hatch. Yeah. Mm. It's time to celebrate Hatch. Really? Celebrate him. 42 just, just years. Sweep him out the door? Just no. Pile of dust? No, he's right. not a pile of dust. Whoa. You, you celebrate him. He's the most senior leader in the Senate now, right? He wants to tell you that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, uh, he's already dis- disintegrated, though. He's a good man. Well, shouldn't we, I mean, at some point, should we just give all uh, uh, acknowledgement to his aides who have informed him on many issues live on camera on C-SPAN? Um, sorry. <laughs> Unforgiving cold has punished the eastern third uh, of the United States yeah. for the past 10 days, but the most severe winter weather yet will assault the area late this week, according to the Washington Post. First, a monster storm will hammer coastal locations from Georgia to Maine with ice and snow. By Thursday, the exploding storm will in many ways resemble a winter hurricane, battering the easternmost New England with uh, potentially damaging winds. In addition to blinding snow, forecasters are expecting the storm to become a so-called bomb cyclone because its pressure is predicted to fall so fast, an indicator of explosive strengthening. Scary. The storm could rank as the most intense over the waters east of New England in decades at this time of year. While blizzard conditions could pace some coastal areas, the most extreme conditions will remain well out over the ocean. See. A bomb cyclone. that, that's scary, that idea. But a third, to have a third of the country in extreme cold right now, right. to the point that people, a 20-something-year-old, 26-year-old woman died just leaving a party the other day, went on a walk or something with her friends, probably not, you know, probably under the influence or whatever, right. but then got lost and died. I mean, 11 people have died because of the cold. Yeah. And now we've got cyclone Bomb. The bomb cyclone coming in. So scary. Uh, finally, words we're sick of. Northern oh. Michigan's uh, Lake Superior State University today or yesterday released its 43rd annual list of words banished from the Queen's English for misuse, overuse, and general uselessness. This okay. year's list includes uh, the term, let me ask you this. You'll hear that on a list. Let me ask you this. Uh, unpack. Unpack this for me. Oh, that, interesting. That yeah. Impactful, nothing burger, tons, mm. tons di- of fun. Dish, yeah. What's you know, dish or dis? Dish. Okay. The idea of like let's dish let's and sit dish, down and gossip, talk about right? something. Yeah. Drill down. Let's drill down on this topic. Mm. It's I'm, just overused. I'm going to try to use some of these. Let that sink in. And a top vote getter was fake news. Mm. What, what was the first one again? Something about. Uh, Let me ask you this. I say that. 
pretty much on a daily basis. Do you really? Oh, yeah. They're just empty phrases that you use to set up what you're trying to say yeah. when you could just say it. Well, but, yeah. The others are, Then you'd have to think about it. The others are pre-owned, onboarding, offboarding. I say that with our producers on the t- all the time when I'm training them. This is your onboarding. Hmm. Really? Yeah. That's why they come talk to me. Then. This yeah. is your onboarding. Uh, we're going to... Yeah. Please keep your hands in the onboarding and, at and all And they time. have hot water heater. I'm not sure really? why that's on the list. Hmm. It's kind of a needful oh, I gotta thing, right? I do need a new hot water. Gig yeah. economy. Yes. And uh, kofefi. People are tired of hearing <laughs> oh. the word kofefi. The only thing I say to my wife more than, let me ask you something, is I will uh, start talking to her as if I've been... Including her in the conversation in my mind. Does that make sense? You just jump like, halfway into the... Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about something, and then I'll just start talking to her as if she's been a part of that conversation already. Oh, interesting. W- How does she context. handle that? What does yeah. she... She's like, wait, what? What, are you, what are you talking and about? Confusion yeah. Or does she just walk you to the you know counter and get you your little pill? And when I start talking, I don't give any specifics. It's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. She's like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Every day. Why Every day. Have you thought of including her earlier? Mm. And maybe some of the thinking about it. I just, I feel like we've been married long enough that she should know what I'm talking I about. I mean, if she loved you, you'd think she'd be <laughs> in on this conversation already, right? That's interesting. I I don't do that. I don't. I don't just start a conversation in the middle of a conversation. Hmm. I've learned lately that I just like to be quiet now. I usually weigh the hassle of trying to inform the the person on all the issue to get them to the point where I can, you know, yeah. explain to them the part that's most important to me. But have you ever noticed like it's really just, hard to bring up everything? Jeff's just jumping to the most important part, and then you have to, do I want to give them all the context? Eh, yeah. Then I just skip the conversation. And yet I also uh, think that my wife should spell things out for me clearly and perfectly. Yeah. Well, no, Yeah. I think a lot of us feel that way with you. You know what I mean? It's funny. Hmm. We've been we've been away from each other for 10 days. I've missed you. I know. You talked to me before the show. It's unprecedented. It was totally weird. Normally, <laughs> I would save my words for you. You didn't even see me, but you called out for I, me. You're I, like, I, Jeffrey. I sensed, your, I sensed your spirit. Are you here? Plus, I heard you coughing or blowing your nose, I think it was. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're, you've overcome your cold as I well. I think you were just worried. Jeff, are you alive? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about, uh, is D.C. A, a cynical swamp? Is it really a swamp to be drained, just full of a bunch of cynical people? Or is that just how the rest of the country sees the swamp? Uh, joining us will be actually a... a, a a writer, a, one of the um, speech writers for President Obama, David Witt, will be joining us, talking to us about an article he wrote about the fact that the D.C. area may be filled with more optimistic, hopeful people than anywhere else on Earth. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I walk through the streets and I realize that everything...
Many people believe that Washington, D.C. is a cynical swamp, a place where politicians push their career agendas and leave a trail of hopelessness behind. But our guest today believes that our nation's capital is the most hopeful place in America. Here to speak with us about this is the former senior presidential speechwriter to President Obama and the author of the book, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years, uh, David Litt. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us, David. Thanks for having me. This is uh, – it's true. Everybody – when you look at D.C., I don't, it's hard not to think everyone's cynical because there's so many – there's just so much, I guess, angst against each other and everybody pushing their agenda. But you're telling us um, in, in a recent, in a recent um, article that you wrote that uh, it's probably filled with a lot more optimism than people might give it credit for. That's right. I'm not suggesting that D.C. does not feel swampy. I think it feels (laughs) very swampy, especially these days. I mean, you know, I think the number of lobbyists who worked on this tax bill recently was like 6,000. You get all sorts of politicians saying one thing and then doing another. So I'm not um, uh, disagreeing with all the reasons that so many of us, both in and outside D.C., are frustrated with Washington. But I do think that one of the things that I learned from moving here and from working here with some amazing people was that so many people come to Washington because they really do believe that they can make a difference here. And I think that's something that gets overlooked. I mean, really, and a lot of young, kind of optimistic, hopeful people that really want to change the world gather together. Is it because you've worked with a president, you've been in those meetings. Is there something about the process that eventually turns them to be less hopeful, less optimistic, or is it, um, or or what actually happens that makes it seem so swampy? Well, I think that over time, uh, you, you see two different things. One is that you're always going to have people acting in bad faith, and I think unfortunately. Uh, a lot of the time when power is concerned, uh, people who act in bad faith, they tend to be power hungry. And so you tend to see those examples. And I think it's up to all of us to push back against that and to try to make sure that the people who are in power deserve to be and are, are seeking power for the right reasons. Um, for people closer to my age, I think you do see some people become cynical. But I think more than that, um, what you really see is people – having to confront the sort of idealism that we all have when we're younger with the realism that you gradually pick up as you get older. I mean, I moved to Washington when I was 22, uh, you know, it was right at the beginning of the Obama administration. Whatever you think about President Obama, it was this exciting time full of idealism for a lot of people. And I don't think I'm a cynic these days at all, but I do think that I'm more realistic. My view is a little bit more textured. And sometimes holding that in your head can be more difficult. And so I do think cynicism is a concern. I I think the bigger concern these days is actually probably not from the young people becoming cynical. It's from the politicians who really are doing sort of favor trading and the kind of saying one thing and doing another that makes so many people disillusioned with D.C., sometimes for good reason. Do do you see – I mean because it is so complicated now with so many you know lobbyists and other people's hands now in the mix – um, and just the the power swapping and um, kind of the t- the tone and the tenor that's now more of a more seems to have a, a stronger place back in D.C. Is it is it harder now to make change than it was for whether an optimist or a pessimist or a cynic? Is it harder to make changes today in D.C. than ever before? 
I think in some ways it is harder to make changes in Washington, and that's less because of the nature of the individual people who are running the government. Um, whether you agree with those changes or not, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I strongly disagree with a lot of the changes that the Trump administration, the Congress are pushing. But one of the reasons it's hard for either party to make changes when they're in control is just the way that the system is set up, that there's all of these veto points. Um, for example, when President Obama was in office, uh, over and over again, we would have the support of a clear majority of the American people on legislation, often a clear majority of the Congress, but we couldn't get a vote. Hmm. So, for example, immigration reform, um, you know, if it had ever come to a vote, uh, absolutely would have passed both houses of Congress. But for a variety of procedural reasons, uh, it never made it to a vote. A lot of stuff, you know, the filibuster used to be used in the Senate fairly rarely to have that 60 vote threshold. And now it's become routine. And that's true with both parties, although it's, the reason it's true is because uh, of what happened when Mitch McConnell was the Senate minority leader back in the day. Mm. So I think what we're seeing is this kind of, uh, it, it is harder to get things done, but at the same time, we're also um, seeing more and more the, the what the American people want isn't happening out of Washington on, on issue after issue. And I do think that's a concern. And so it doesn't surprise me that people are becoming cynical. What I think is important to remember is that the it, it becoming disenchanted with the way the system is working is different than becoming um, assuming that everybody who moves to Washington isn't doing it for the right reason. Hmm. You know, it, it's interesting. Cause, so here I am uh, living in Utah, a traditional probably Republican, I guess, but I was seriously moved by President Obama. Here he is, this young, charismatic leader with a really incredible, I think, story and um, charisma. I don't know. Just he, I was. It was just a cool time and a cool president. Um, do, do you? See, but but I'm still a Republican. And then there's the whole idea about the ideas and and the differences in um, in how we see the political world. But I feel less energized in a way about uh, President Trump now. And so I wonder is. Is some of this – you have all of these young, hopeful people in D.C. Is some of this – and we've talked about it on the show before – ageism? I mean how a lot of our senators are a lot older than before and we don't have as much young. It doesn't seem vibrant uh, talent sitting on the benches of our political uh, groups anymore. Is, is some of this about age? Is some of this – or are there other factors that made the difference between an Obama and maybe a Trump today? I think the biggest difference is the uh, how much a, a president prioritizes the national interest versus their political interest and their self-interest. Hmm. And again, you, you may not have agreed with President Obama's policies. You know, I, I worked in the White House for several years. I'm well aware that many people didn't, and, and we knew <laughs> that going in. Um, but I do think that even people who disagreed with President Obama, as you were saying, for the most part, admired him as a person. A lot yeah. of people felt like this is somebody who's a decent person. He's trying to do his best, even if they didn't agree with what he was doing. Um, you know, you can see that in his family. And I think one of the reasons that Americans are concerned, and I would say rightly so, uh, about the Trump presidency, regardless of what party you belong to, is this sense that, um, you know, we just learned that all these foreign governments are doing favors for Trump-aligned businesses. Uh, you know, you look at the tax bill and the Trump family will save a billion dollars from the tax bill that the president then promoted. And so will many members of his cabinet. And I think that sort of thing 
uh, is making people cynical, not necessarily about American government, but certainly about this administration. You wonder whether they're doing it for the right reasons. I, I personally would be surprised if they are. It's it's fun to have uh, – again, we're speaking with David Litt, who was an American speechwriter, served uh, under the Obama presidency, um, also the author of the book, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. David, uh, was it was it different for you to write a speech for the president that was more policy-oriented versus um, a, a, another speech that might be more – um, you know, a hopeful or, or I guess you or would you merge any policy speech into a hopeful greater America speech? Does that make sense? It does make sense. In my book, I write a bunch of times about speeches I didn't write very well. And one of the mistakes I often made, especially when I was starting, was to just write about a policy. Hmm. You know, let's say we're writing a speech about infrastructure to write just about infrastructure. And one of the things I learned is that for a president, every speech, every piece of communication is really about America as a whole. So, you know, you're talking about that issue, you're talking about infrastructure and what we're doing and build, you know, a bridge or a tunnel or a road, whatever. But then it has to connect to this bigger vision for the entire country and one that unifies everybody, that everybody, even people who don't necessarily agree politically with the policy, um, even people can can agree with those values and the ideas behind that policy. Yeah. And so that's what we tried to do, you know, and it was one of the things that makes me really proud to have been part of that, uh, part of the Obama administration was that it was always about trying to connect the individual things that the president was doing to his bigger vision for the United States. That is powerful. Did that come, David, from the leader? Did that come from President Obama or did that come from the hopeful uh, wishful David Litt that then brought that into your work? It absolutely came from President Obama. One of the things that I think is really remarkable, if you look at Barack Obama as a political figure, and you look at the 2004 speech that he gave at the Democratic National Convention, which was the first time he really stepped onto the national stage, the policies are different because the times are different. But so much of the vision, so much of the idea of who we are as a people and what we can achieve and where we can go as a country is the same. Hmm. And one of the amazing things about getting to be a speechwriter for someone like that is you never had to sit and wonder, okay, what does the president think about these big issues? You could go back to big speeches that he had written um, or you know, that he had collaborated very closely on with the chief speechwriter, and you could take those and use those as a sort of um, touchstone. for the specific thing that you were writing. And that was a real privilege. I mean, you know, one of the things that I always feel like is uh, I I really lucked out where I don't think uh, anybody's going to get a better speechwriting job than the one that I had for for a couple of years. Well, and what else is fun is that um, your President Obama seems to take the giving of a speech more serious than President Trump does now. Like, it's almost, and you, I would feel really good writing for a President Obama because you almost know he can really deliver it well um, as, as just an order. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that President Obama, uh, first of all, excelled at. I mean, you know, yeah. his rhetorical ability is just, you know, pretty, pretty unmatched, I would say, in recent years, certainly, prob- probably longer back than that. But the other thing, too, I think that's important is President Obama recognized that as the president, every word you say or write or tweet 
they all matter, um, and they all have an impact that's much bigger than if you or I were to say or write or tweet something. And so, you know, it is this very strong contrast. Uh, it's one of the things that my book ended up being about, even though that was not, was not the point. It just sort of happened that way. Mm. Between a, a president who really believed and understood that words matter and a president who, you know, you look through his Twitter feed and, and he does not seem the most careful with his words. And I, I, that has consequences. Well, and even today, the you know my nuclear weapon, my nuclear button is bigger than your nuclear button, and my nuclear button works. Um, can, can you could you even have fathomed that coming out of an Obama White House? No, not at all. I mean, especially I, I just on Twitter policy. Not yeah. No, I, I worked in domestic policy, not foreign policy. But I can tell you that the foreign policy process there was a process. It wasn't this impulsive. And, uh, you know, kind of off-the-cuff statement and, um, and a little childish. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, is kind of like mine is bigger than yours is not a good way to right. conduct policy in a nuclear, you know, where, where you have two countries with nuclear weapons who are adversaries. And this sort of thing is kind of, you know, I, I did a lot of jokes for President Obama. I work for Funny or Die, the comedy uh, website today. This sort of thing is funny until it really is not funny, and it does concern me that it's not just a matter of somebody who doesn't have the discipline to you know, think before they tweet, but that we could see real potentially deadly consequences from something like this down the road. Yeah. In fact, James Clapper, uh, former intelligence officer, said um, the problem is you're goading somebody that you don't know where their ignition point is. You're, you're goading somebody that may really just react. And well, that's you right. don't know. Yeah, right. And I think there is that um, that nature of sort of instability, which for what Republican presidents, Democratic presidents, the the sort of history of the United States, certainly in the modern era, has been that the United States has has asserted itself as the responsible, less impulsive player, especially when dealing with a rogue state like North Korea. And so to see us abandon that. Uh, I think is we don't know fully what the consequences are going to be, but I don't think any of them are going to be good. Hopefully they're just minor rather than truly catastrophic. Does this do – do you sense that – I mean that this leads to more cynicism about Washington? Um, what – you know, President Trump's – some of the language he's using, some of the name-calling he's using, um, does it lead, lead to more cynicism or does it actually open up more hope that, you know, anybody can do this? <laughs> Well, I don't know that it uh, – I think one of the lessons, and I may be biased here, but one of the lessons I think we're learning in this political moment is that not anybody can be president. It is a tough job, and it takes somebody uh, you know, who has the right temperament and the right approach. I do think that there's less cynicism about elections than there might have been. Um, you know, I, I, When I talk to my friends or when I hear from Democrats who are – younger than I am, you know, remind me of me when I was in college, the energy around, um, you know, getting people in office who do represent us better than the current Congress and better than our current elected officials is pretty overwhelming. I mean, it is, uh, it reminds me of 2008 with the Obama campaign. So certainly, at least on the Democratic side, I think there's a lot of energy. I can't speak yeah. to the Republican side. I think the uh, – not so much a cynicism, but a genuine concern is how do we fix Washington so that once we have people here who are uh, – you know, have a clear majority of Americans backing what they're doing, 
uh, you know, I think one of the things that's pretty remarkable about the current situation is, again, we have a president who wasn't elected by a majority of the popular vote. So these aren't policies that most Americans, most Americans saw this coming. They didn't want it. And so, what, you know, let's go to the future. Imagine when you have a president who does have a clear mandate and you have a Congress who shares that mandate. How can you make sure that they can make the changes that Americans would like to see in their day, in their lives? How can you make sure that Congress can be improving rather than holding back the this just daily life of Americans and, and American families? Hmm. And we have a lot of work to do to figure out where the system is breaking down and how to fix it. But I think rather than cynicism, I, I'm encouraged by the amount of energy I'm seeing for taking on that project. Is, do you think there will ever be a day where we have a unifying president that that can really uh, garner more than 50 percent and can can bring us all together? I think it's unlikely that we're going to have your presidents who were sort of wild, widely popular on the scale that they used to be in a bipartisan way because politics has gotten so sorted where, you know, you can watch only the media that you agree with or you can, uh, you know, only surround yourself with people who feel the same way you do. And so we have this partisan splitting. I do think that one of the things that surprises me is how quickly, in retrospect, so many Americans remember even President Obama, who has not been an ex-president very long, quite fondly. So I think you have a lot of Republicans who maybe didn't necessarily agree with President Obama's policy agenda, but we saw this during the fight for uh, over health care repeal in the summer, saying, you know what, I, I didn't like the Obama part of Obamacare, but this policy that is providing insurance to someone in my family or someone I care about, uh, that's something that I don't necessarily want to get rid of so quickly. And you've seen um, President Obama, now former President Obama's approval ratings, rise pretty dramatically now that he's moved from being a president to an ex-president. Yeah. I think we will have presidents where we will look back on them uh, in a bipartisan way. But I think, you know, politics is uh, is pretty split right now, and I don't see that as likely to change. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be able to do things as a country. Yeah. What advice would you give, uh, you know, I mean, as a parent, if my son said, hey, I want to go back to D.C. and I'm going to make a big difference and I'm going to go work for a senator, in my head I'm like, oh, boy, you sure you want to go back there? <laughs> but what what advice would you give uh, about it not being a cynical swamp, that, you know, even just the hopeful uh, aspirations of – uh, a, a young person can go back there and make some difference? I would actually say start on a campaign rather than moving straight to Washington, D.C., because so much of the um, so much of the energy in Washington comes from the campaign trail, and if you miss that, you sometimes don't realize why you're doing what hmm. you're doing, or it's hard to remember. So spend time outside of Washington first, figure out why the decisions that are being made there really do affect people's lives, and then when you go to Washington, it makes you less likely to forget that stuff and less likely to, as you pointed out, kind of become one of those more cynical, more swampy people that we all uh, are <laughs> rightly concerned are running the show. That's so good. David Litt, thank you so much for your great insight. Again, um, a former senior presidential speechwriter to President uh, Barack Obama and also the author of the book, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years. David Litt is his name, and he um, he continues to uh, be a head producer and writer for Funny or Die's office in Washington, D.C., um, very interesting insight that uh, he wrote in an article on the Washington Post. Good stuff. Again, just uh, trying to understand what was, what is, and what will be right here on the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back, friends. It's good to be back with you. It's a Wednesday, and so whenever you start your week on a Wednesday, you've already won, right? I mean, <laughs> you've, you've already won. That's the home run right there. Because then each three days you're done. Then you have another week, and then the next week there's another holiday. Woohoo! Woohoo! Excuse me. It's hard. This Super was the excited. same schedule for like college too, right? That's yeah. kind of how we're following the, the college we're at, their schedule there. But when I was in school, it was hard to get back into the whole cycle yeah. of college because you come back from New Year's, you're here a week, and then you take another day yeah, off. Yeah, but you're assuming that you know education is important. <clears throat> I just wanted to feel like I had a schedule again. I know what you mean. Yeah. It was difficult. I had to shave my beard last night. I was wondering if you had a full beard. I almost came in and and uh, had it with me one day here because you had requested that last Why time. Why did and you didn't do it? Well, I don't really want negative attention from some of the higher ups. Well, yeah, but if you didn't want negative attention, it's your back hair. I'd worry about. <laughs> hey, let's. Uh, th- apparently, there's some new research about fake news. We just learned that fake news is one of the words that we are tired of. We're tired of. We're using it too much. Which, by the way, fake news. Two words invented by President Trump. Right. And our last guest talking about yeah. he sees Washington, D.C. as a hopeful place. Not not just this big cesspool, the swamp so that needs to be drained. He's kind of pointing to some fake news there as someone <laughs> yeah. keeps talking about the swamp. Right. Not uh, a swamp. So three political scientists, one from Dartmouth, one from Princeton, and one from the University of Exeter. Exeter. So that would be the UK. Um, they looked at some data from during the 2016 election on who consumed fake news, specifically data between October 7th and November 14th of 2016. A sample of 2,500 Americans who agreed to have their online activity monitored anonymously. Yeah. What they found, one in four Americans saw at least one fake news story. One in four. One in four. Trump supporters visited the most fake news websites, which were overwhelmingly pro-Trump. However, fake news consumption was heavily concentrated among a small group. Almost six in ten visits to fake news websites came from the 10 percent of people with the most conservative online information diets. Okay, but hold on. Yeah, go ahead. So fake news is really consumed more by Trump voters. That's what this report is saying. But is but it's so it's negative news against Trump. But consumed by Trump voters, or is it negative or, news against Clinton maybe, or whoever? Both. It could be positive oh. or negative against Trump, because positive it, or it negative against like, Clinton. Yeah, but Trump really only cared about fake news against him. Well, sure, but the, you could see that energizing someone who was one of his supporters if you see something that's negative against yeah. him. You know what I mean? But do they actually discern if it's fake or not? It doesn't get into that. So, I'm going to oh, bet not. It says, overall, fake news stories made up a small percentage of what the participants read, 1% for Clinton supporters. 6% for Trump supporters. Mm. Mm. These are also people consuming all kinds of news on top of yeah. that, right? Yeah. It says Americans over the age of 60 were much more likely to visit a fake news site than younger people. Really? So I'm not sure if that's because younger people maybe can discern something that or doesn't look right. Or maybe younger people aren't reading news. Maybe younger people aren't reading. A uh, key quote from the uh, study, for all the hype about fake news, it's important to recognize that it reached only a subset of Americans, and most of the ones it was reaching already were intense partisans. Yeah. They were also big consumers of hard news. These, uh, these are people intensely engaged in politics who follow it closely. So, yeah, and these are probably people that go to their favorite sources always, same sources. Right. So the the big finding is that a lot of the, the news and speculation around it has uh, kind of 
been taken out of context. Like yeah. it was this huge, like 80% of what they're reading is wrong. And it turned out to be like one to 6%. How, how do you know that what you're telling us isn't fake news? <laughs> sure. Okay. We can just not believe anything. That's really the best way to go through life. See, that's the problem with the fake news thing. Is uh, but really all you have to do is read it with a little discernment, and mm-hmm. you'd be like, "Yeah, that doesn't seem right." No, even if it's sourcing sources, which they usually don't resourcefully. Yeah, it's, just thought I'd toss another one in there. Yeah, well, we appreciate that. Interesting, interesting help. update on fake news. And so, if you're out there as a as a listener, that's one of the reasons you'd want to listen to the Matt Townsend show because we're not going to bring you fake news. We might make up some news. Wrong, but, but we would call that empty news. Not fake news. We'll continue the journey, folks, uh, doing what we can to help you uh, get ahead in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back as you're uh, getting over and settling down after Christmas. you got to get over a lot of things. Um, not just all the festivities, the fun, all the family time you've had, all the movies you were able to go watch. You also have to get over all the treats. Right. The, the snacks that those people Those can be brought. dangerous. And now, not just for how? your waistline. Yeah, how? It could be dangerous for your house. My The snacks from my neighbors? So it's interesting because last treats. year for Christmas, it seemed like every neighbor in our neighborhood came by with treats. And we were a little uh, surprised this year. Yeah. We just weren't getting them. We thought, man... I guess maybe that was just because we were new, people were bringing them by. Well, it turns out people waited until after we left town to bring the treats by. Yeah. So they started to pile up on our doorstep, unbeknownst to us. We knew that one of these people had brought us a treat. So my brother-in-law just happened to come over to borrow something, and he saw all the treats, and he's like, I'll just put them inside their house. Well, we come home, and somebody had left this chocolate loaf of bread. Ooh. And uh, we Yum. noticed that one of the corners had been nibbled at. <gasps> so we thought, okay, is that it, your brother? It was brother-in-law. Uh, it was nibbled. <laughs> it was nibbled at uh, outside, and then my brother-in-law brought it in. Not so. Uh oh. And my wife started noticing little mouse droppings in several of our drawers. You sure, it wasn't like cake. I'm anyway, pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because we would clean it up the and mice, then more would show up. The mice were coming out. Yes. And we've never had a mouse problem before. So then we had to go and do the whole mouse trap thing. Yeah. And, and the mouse uh, attractant. Uh-huh. I think it's, it's like this little mouse musk gel that kind of foams yeah. up and uh, supposedly works better than peanut butter yeah. and cheese. Also, not true. No. But we found I, Terry's out. Terry's been wearing mouse musk for years, and I haven't <laughs> seen one mouse around here. So, I mean, we had a very productive coming back from Christmas, not only having to throw away most of these treats. Yeah, you can't nibble and on something. I don't mean to be ungrateful to either the neighbors or my brother-in-law, who was doing what Just, we probably right. would have done in that case. But uh, we did finally catch a mouse. I'm not sure if it was the mouse. No, you're not. If it was the only mouse. Because the rule is, you know, if you find one, then you're missing five more. Are you serious? That's the rule. It's the rule of five. Because they did did the guy, was he wearing a bow tie? Did he have a briefcase? The the mouse? Uh Uh-huh. I didn't. I couldn't tell inside the trap. I just saw his little tail sticking out. Or you got to look to see if it's wearing an apron. 
and has a big bouffant hairdo because you, know, you got to find the mom or the dad. And then once you get the mom uh, or the dad, then you're probably going to have three or four little kids running around. Another another clue that we had a mouse problem. I went to grab some peanuts from this bag of peanuts that I, I like to indulge in every once in yeah. a while. And I noticed that most of the peanuts that I pulled out of the bag were just shells. Yeah. So my wife has banned peanuts from our house now. Really? Which is one of the healthier food choices that I've been going after. It sounds like she should ban her brother. So I actually – what finally got the mouse was I had to take one of those peanuts and put it in the trap and that's what got it. Ah, Really? But I am worried. How do we know yeah. that there are no other mice? Well, and if I were you, I'd get rid of the mouse musk because it's making me twitch. But do you think that's fair? Should peanuts – No. Should they be banned in my household? No, peanuts so, are people too. All because of the holiday treats, I can no longer have peanuts. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not not that I'm not grateful. No, it's going to be good for your body someday. Um well, we wish you the best of luck at your home, and may you know, may you f- you find the family. Mm. Scary, nothing worse than the little infestation of mice. Merry Christmas, happy holidays. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, folks. Welcome back to the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered, finally back together again. I missed you all so much. Every time I'd go to a movie, which was like three or four times, I thought of you all. Yeah, we went to a uh, quite a few movies as well. We saw three, two of which I'd already seen. Did you, so I saw my movie that I recommend to everybody now. Not Star Wars, but I would recommend that. That's a mm, great flick. For you. But uh, The Greatest Showman. It was good. I can't get enough of it. I love the soundtrack. There was hooting and hollering going on, all from a man, by the way. Yeah. And what a – he's got a kick. No, I'm not talking about Hugh Jackman. Oh. I'm talking about an audience member. Oh, Just really? during the opening scene where where you see Hugh Jackman kind of in the shadows. Yeah. And this guy was like, woo! <laughs> woo! He was excited. Oh, it's a great show. Did, did you see that yet, Terry? No. Terry, you I'm would I'm probably going to be confused because I'll be, you know, is that Wolverine in a top hat? What's happening? Yeah, totally. Because you know, when, I saw, when I saw, what was the French resistance movie? Les Mis. Les Mis. He's in the sewers, jumps out of the yeah. sewer. I'm like, here's Wolverine. Oh, it's just Wolverine, that guy singing a song use again. Use your blades, dude. Yeah, dude. Well, you, you do know that he's done quite a bit of Broadway, right? Oh, I'm well aware. Okay. I just choose to block that out because he's Wolverine and I don't want to sully the image of Wolverine with musicals. <laughs> Hold well, on. But he's also, image of... he's also not going to be Wolverine yes, again. Yes, he's done. He's Really? He's it. That's good because, I mean, he's old. So he, the last one he did was Old Man Wolverine. They were going to call it Old Wolverine. And so now they have hmm. to find someone new to be Wolverine because hey. th- now the X-Men are going to continue in the Disney Empire. Have you seen, though, for as old as he apparently – he's 50. He just turned right. 50, which isn't old. It is for Wolverine because Wolverine's no. not supposed to age. I know, but have you uh, – oh, isn't he? Yeah, it's part of that. his regenerative uh, – regenerative, His uh, regenerative? There you go. Uh, mutant power. 
Wow. That's his mutant the power. He regenerates. you could put that sentence together. Yeah. Now, the adamantium, like, skeleton that was put in by a, a secret Canadian government black the ad- ops situation. Adamantium. Okay. Again. Not a lot. See, I, I can't say regenerative. I can't even say it again. But, but can I can say, say the other words that yeah. don't. So the greatest showman was good. It was great. And, by the way, <laughs> Hugh Jackman nice. is ripped. Well, He's I mean, jacked. He honestly, sort of. as far as the movie stars go, yeah. when when you see his Wolverine picture, yeah. he is as ripped as any movie star sure. I have ever seen, ever. It's, I, I just don't think it's like useful muscle. It's more like show muscle. Well, no, but like, I mean, there's like Arnold Schwarzenegger fake, I mean, real muscle, but it's yeah. like useless. Well, for, it's yeah. like, I mean, you got, the guy's got to have a neck. You gotta have it. <laughs> yeah, but like functional. I've seen him yeah. lift. I've seen Hugh Jackman lift. He doesn't lift that much weight. No, no, no. But, like yeah. he was deadlifting on sixty minutes one time because they're showing his workout right. regimen, and I'm looking down at the weights and I'm counting them up, and I go, I can lift more than that. Jealous but, no, but, but it's much. Not, but it's not about it's not about how much weight you lift. It's about having a strong core. Well, sure, I understand, but he's just come on, man. <laughs> Step up your weight. We Plus saw the guy we saw sing. Coco. Yeah, we saw Coco. Coco for the second time. Coco puff. Did I see that him? is a great flick. It was just I cried even harder the second time. Did you? I I actually fell asleep. It was it was pretty embarrassing cuz I was down I t- had to take my son. We did take my baby. So I took it and he's a perfect angel during movies. I took him down to the front row yeah, or one right. of the front rows and I reclined back and I was like making audible noises <laughs> as I was crying. I almost <laughs> I almost <laughs> made this <laughs> basically. Wow. But it was almost like uh, really? It was not. Did you make your baby cry? No, he was asleep. It was the person behind you. He like, also Man, slept. That baby's sniffling a lot. But I mean, it would. It was. I was this close to making a really ugly noise, like a like and an I emotional. Was looking, I was looking around me, like, can anybody see me, like, panting and like, yeah, just on the verge of bursting wow. out with a weird noise. I felt the same way during Jumanji. <laughs> <laughs> Jumanji was great. But I sat on the front row there and that – my neck – okay. So I'm having neck problems mm. from using my technology too much. Okay. Do you guys ever get that? I believe the technical term is nerd neck. Come again? Yeah. Nerd I, neck? I nerd get neck. a sore neck from doing dishes like a I'll good s- husband. I'll send you some videos on how to correct that. Do you – okay, do. Do, yeah, you, yeah. Uh, do you do enough dishes to get nerd neck? Oh, yeah. I doubt it. I did. I cleaned up the turkey Christmas Eve dinner, okay, so and that one. was. It's I do one the dishes meal. frequently, yeah. but enough to get nerd neck. Yes. So I then had nerd neck, and then I we got seats on the front row to watch Jumanji, mm. and I feel like I don't know. It looked weird on the front row because Johnson, what's his name? Who's the who's Dwayne the Dwayne Johnson? Dwayne Johnson, President just, he Johnson, looked like his body wasn't right mm. when you're that close. Well, I mean. Yeah. He just looked like he had a huge head. <laughs> Does President Johnson have a nice ring to it? Well, I think we've had one, right? Yeah, but yeah, that, that doesn't mean there was a good ring to it. I'm just asking well, you if yeah. President Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now, Does The Rock, that The have... Rock, the President The Rock. Yeah, it should be President The Rock. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, we went and saw um, Coco. Hmm. I think I fell asleep because I don't remember much of it. 
but there was about a half hour to 45 minute delay because the projector. Hey, ours had the same problem. They did, came you in a, and, did you get a free ticket? Maybe oh, it was yeah, because yeah. they yeah. had taken uh, the frozen short out. Could be. They came in and they're like, we have to replace the circuit board. This will take just a minute. If the movie oh. doesn't start, we'll give you a free pass. Yeah, they, if they it does start, enjoy the movie, and then we'll give you a free pass. I looked at my wife, and I'm like, so either way, we win. Let's just sit here and see what happens. And it's it started I, up. It's ironic you don't remember what happened in the movie because it's a movie about remembering. Yeah. Huh. I think I fell asleep. Yeah, I really enjoy passing out in these movies. But Coco's movies. a great movie. It, yeah. it, by the way, Hollywood finally is doing their job. Well, we'll see. What do you mean? They finally put sleep? out a, a, an entire Christmas season worth of movies that yeah. you want to see. There was nothing for the entire year, and then all of a sudden, one week, bam, there bam, were bam, like bam. 10 movies. Uh-huh. Then there's the one that is about the Pentagon Papers. The Post. The Post. That I wonder how that will do. It'll be out in a couple of weeks nationwide. Do you Apparently, think it's going to – is it going to – I mean, I'm sure it will receive all the nominations. It already has. Well, apparently Donald Trump, they, there's some speculation as to whether or not he will watch it. Who cares? Well – Not to be rude, but – Because I don't think it's very uh, oh, oh, yeah, well, Trump-friendly. Yeah. No, right. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's not. But it has – Well, the whole story was what Nixon was trying to squash this report. And he told the New York Times to stop, so the New York Times stopped, but the Washington Post didn't. And the Washington yeah. Post, like, we're journalists. We're going to stand up against the powers that be, which is, you know, reflective of right now. So, yeah, it probably wouldn't be a, a message he would like. I'll go see it because it has Mr. Saul Goodman himself mm. in it. Yeah. Everyone loves Saul. Better call Saul. Bob Odenkirk. Come again? That's his name. Bob Odenkirk. Is, That's the actor's is, is, name. Oh, Bob is Odenkirk. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. Oh. There's a there's a funny scene where he's got uh, all these documents on an airplane with him with a seatbelt over yeah, it. And the steward that. is like, oh, those must be really important. Oh, you know, just government secrets. Not she a big walks deal. On by. <laughs> OK. Do you want extra peanuts? Um, oh, no. Okay. Unless you want to catch some ice. Don't go for that. Got a lot to cover. Uh, sad day for the LDS Church. Passing of President Thomas S. Monson last night, the leader of the LDS Church. And uh, it's a big deal. Whether you're LDS or not, he was an incredible man who for more than 54 years served as a leader of the uh, um, in the Twelve Apostles, one of the, the quorums, the leadership groups of the LDS Church, and was also the 16th president of the church. So uh, just, you know, trying to remember him at 90 years old, really an entire lifetime giving back and and uh, ministering to the individual. So uh, we all are mourning over that. Let's get to the rest of the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to today? A brutal winter storm bearing down on the East Coast today. 11 people have already died across the U.S. due to cold-related deaths during this cold spell. The storm expected to strengthen rapidly as it heads north, and authorities are urging people from Florida north through Maine to stay indoors. The extraordinary strong offshore formation will resemble a winter hurricane, the Washington Post reports, with uh, snow and forceful winds. New York's Long Island and New England are, will experience the heaviest snowfall, to- snowfall totals. The blast on top of deep freeze throughout the Midwest and New England that left 90% of the U.S. below 32 degrees on New Year's Day. What, wow. the, yesterday at 8 a.m. Eastern, the average temperature in the continental U.S. was 9 degrees. Oh, 
I think my, that's what I saw. My son is on his LDS mission. He sent us a video of boiling hot water. They boiled hot water in Missouri. Oh, yeah. And then threw it out off of their deck, and it just turned to a cloud. And I just wow. put on a light hoodie and went about my business yesterday. I know. So. It was warm here in the mountain, <laughs> inner mountain area. Huh. President Trump on Tuesday taunted North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, warning Kim about U.S. Nuclear capabilities as tensions worsen between the two nations. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button on his desk at all times. Will someone from his depleted food starved regime please uh. tell him that I have a button too? So, And mine is bigger and uh. more powerful. Uh. And mine works. So... Uh. Trump has a button that's bigger than the Button, button. Who's got the button? NBC News reported Tuesday that two U.S. military officials warned that North Korea could be testing a ballistic missile in the coming days. CBS News reports that the Pentagon believes the test could occur in the next week or two. If North Korea does conduct a ballistic missile test, it would be their seventh launch in the last six months. Wow. So something to look forward to. <laughs> as both of them are talking about their buttons. Well, and uh, Kim Jong-un is like, hey, we have a button. I mean, if I push this button, I can now, reach anywhere in the United States. As we talked about last hour, and we've learned from reports, apparently there is a button on the president's desk to order Coke. Is it one of those easy buttons? I'm not sure. Okay. If he's thirsty, he punches a button. It's like an Amazon click button. And there's someone it, that brings him a, a frosty Coke. So if we're in that moment, and yeah. he needs to make a decision, and he hits the wrong button... I mean... Everybody needs a button. Are these clearly marked, I guess, is my question. Does one say Coke and the other say bomb? Ah, bummer. I was trying to just order a Diet Coke. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. Uh, Other news, a little notice statement from Senator Richard Burr, Republican North Carolina, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, detailed how unsophisticated the Russian ad targeting actually was in the context of the election when it came to the fake social media stories. Among the points he made, Maryland was targeted by nearly five times as many ads as was Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin was one of the the states, 20,000 votes is what it came down to for Trump to win. Wisconsin, Michigan, and and Pennsylvania, I guess right through there were where these counties were targeted. But what they're finding is that Maryland was targeted nearly five times as many times more than Wisconsin was. And Wisconsin is one of these very important areas. Yeah, interesting. So So maybe it's not as big of a story as they're claiming. 35 of the 55 ads targeting Wisconsin ran during the primary. Right? So not even during the presidential cycle. It was before that. Interesting. And it says more ads targeted D.C. than Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania being another key area. D.C. not so much. D.C. was going to go Democratic. It wasn't even a concern. But they said more ads targeted D.C. than Pennsylvania. A total of $1,979 was spent in Wisconsin. $1,925 of it during the primary. Well, maybe, maybe, yeah, the the whole Maryland thing makes no sense. But maybe you only needed $1,000 in Wisconsin to turn Wisconsin. Could be. I mean, that's they were just efficient with their money, yeah, right? Just very efficient. The spending in Michigan and Pennsylvania were eight hundred twenty-three dollars, and Pennsylvania was three hundred dollars. So, no matter what, this isn't a a big scandal, right? I mean, and one and one of the questions from the Senate committee was, if they're targeting specific counties, how did they get the information to know that that county? was in play, that it was you know, a question yeah. whether it would go Democrat or Republican. Where did that information come from? Because the people that have those are the two campaigns. So it was right. someone feeding the Russians information, right? Right. But what they found was that more of the geographically targeted ads ran in 2015 than actually ran in 2016. Oh, interesting. So 
Is this much to do about nothing? Or was it more about the primaries? Could be. But primaries in Maryland would have been Hillary Clinton. Right. So were these GOP ads? That doesn't say. It just says they targeted Maryland. Maryland. Nearly five times as many ads as Wisconsin. Well, maybe. I mean, Maryland and Wisconsin. And the Wisconsin ones ran during the primary. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, again, I guess the big problem is, is somebody colluding with the Russians on giving them the data as to where to target. Right. And we, no matter what, we don't want the Russians advertising no. during our political process. Right. But I mean, we totally the, want we totally want Russia television. But don't at the same time, if they were spending twenty thousand dollars in Wisconsin versus two thousand dollars, yeah, it doesn't seem like they were doing much. But no. haven't you seen all those testing. Russian vodka commercials? No, really? Where? Hmm. Hmm. No. Well, uh, I mean, those, I those are ads. BYU broadcast. Those are Russian ads. And finally, it's a brand new year, but Amazon is still being creepy. The latest news is that the retail giant's Echo smart speakers could soon assess your shopping habits and sneakily nudge you towards buying from a particular brand that has a partnership with Amazon. The story from CNBC. Uh, You mean Alexa would do that to me? Right. As you stand now, the speakers allow advertising on music, news, or podcasts, although the voice isn't allowed to sound like or refer to Amazon's own voice assistant, Alexa. Sorry if I just activated everything. Uh, brands, though, are itching for more. Advertisers and brands are particularly focused on searching or search placement on Alexa because shoppers are more likely to select a top result on a voice assistant than they are on the web, where it's easy to scroll down and ignore written suggestions. They just uh, want right. the, the easiest thing. You right. say paper towels. Send me paper just, towels. Who cares? Just send me paper towels. Especially if it's a good deal. Who cares? For example, if a customer asks for toothpaste, Alexa can potentially say, okay, I can look for a brand like Colgate. Would you like Colgate? And then they send you Colgate because Colgate is paying Amazon to place Colgate in that search. That's interesting. But if I say, I won't say her name. Right. Uh, the Echo. Uh, Greca. Yeah. Uh, find me the cheapest price for Colgate toothpaste, whatever ounces. Right. Then then it's fine. You're asking for that brand. How great would that be if all of a sudden you just teach Alexa – Oops. Yeah, that's right. You just teach her that I always want the cheapest price for this brand. Right. But if you're asking for toothpaste yeah. and then it offers you the first brand. Mm-hmm. Well, then honestly, it doesn't matter to you. Yeah. But it matters to all the other marketers that are like, hey, I want to be first in line on Amazon. But if you're looking huh. on, if you're looking online, you're going to scroll down for the better price. Maybe look at other brands. Well, this one they give you one choice; you just take it because it offered it to you. And you're like, fine, yeah. do it. Do Do you always scroll down? Well, I don't have a voice assistant, so that's the only way I can shop. Is you scroll down. You need You need voice assistants. We've no. been playing with ours. I'd it's rather, a lot of work. My wife does not want one in the house. Oh, we love it. We would call this the instrument's name and mm. then say, "Hey, play us <laughs> the greatest showman." CD. The next thing you know. Whoa. Yeah. What's that? That's when the guy in the audience goes, woo! Yeah. Woo! Can I share my favorite Amazon news over the that occurred over the break? Yes. So I am not a fan of parades. I don't enjoy watching floats go sure. by. Anti-parade. This was funny. Yes. And uh, so Will Ferrell, who uh, is the founder of Funny or Die... I did not know uh, that. By the way, up, our last guest that's writes right. for funnier. He day. teamed up with Amazon, and he and Molly Shannon 
uh, took on these personas yeah. of parade presenters or commentators <laughs> named uh, uh, it was Cord Hosenbeck yeah. and Tish Cadigan. Cord and Tish. And so I don't know if everybody that tuned in was expecting a farce, but that's exactly well, what they got. And the the cheesy commentary was spot on and actually quite funny. Was it the actual parade? It was. Okay. I didn't I, know if they did the actual parade or if they just kind of made something yeah. up. I was but wondering. the opening credit said the Rose Parade with these people presented by Funny or Die. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, at that point, you know it's, it's going to be a parade. Was this the actual... You Was could, this the actual parade being shown on television? Yes, you could stream but it live it on, on Amazon, Amazon Prime. Prime. But they had another one with the real Rose Bowl. On, on TV, there's like HG and all that these other networks amazing. that run it. So they, they made comments like when, when uh, George Bailey's car that was used in the film It's a Wonderful Life uh, drove by, they talked about the fact that, uh, yes, this is the car that he drove right before he attempted suicide. Really? <laughs> or was contemplating suicide in the film It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, one of them – Not to laugh at that. Yeah. Yeah. One of them, the, the uh, farmer's insurance float goes by and they both started singing the tune to uh, We Are Farmers. Bum, ba-dum, ba-dum, bum, bum. And they're like, OK, now let's try it really sad. We are farmers. <laughs> and then, of course, more of the commentary. That's good. They sh- there was more of them shown than the actual parade. Thank goodness. <laughs> and so people, Thank goodness. people were mad. And there's like, a, <laughs> there's like a thousand one-star reviews on this because people didn't get that it was a parody. They thought it was real, and then they were mad when they found out it wasn't. I don't leave right? reviews. I was... I really was passionate about Star Wars The Last Jedi. I wanted to go on Rotten Tomatoes and give it a huge review. I didn't do that. But I did go onto Amazon and give a five-star rating to this because of all the people that were giving it low ratings. Really? I think this is the greatest thing to happen to parades since, uh, well, nothing ever— inflatable balloons. No, nothing ever great has come out of a parade. So this is the first great thing to come out of parades. Just the joy of children. Chasing toffee and candy that's been thrown from the parade goers, and then they run out into the middle of the street. It was so funny that even though we had a house full of people and I thought, oh, we should probably turn this off. This may be rude to have it on. I turned it off, and my wife said, what are you doing? Turn it back on. Wow. It was that good. She was that engaged. Well, uh, it's, it's good. I, I, started watch, I, I started watching it, and then I'm like, ah, this is going to take forever. It was, kind of, it was mo- moving slow. Because parades mm. move kind of slow. It was funny, though. But I'm going to go back and watch it. I think it's available to watch again, isn't it? Cord Hosenbeck talked yeah. uh, frequently about uh, his fear of horses. Really? Yes. <laughs> you can't have a parade without a horse. Hey, uh, now that Christmas is over, you, you may be thinking, oh, I wish I had gotten my child this as a gift. Or maybe we need to return that one thing that doesn't fit right. Well, up next, we're going to be talking with uh, an expert that's going to share with us maybe the one thing your kids need to have. You won't believe it, uh, but it'll help in their development, their growth, and their health. How about the power of a houseplant? Hmm. Straight ahead, this is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio.
the Bronx, which is the poorest congressional district of America, elementary students grow plants inside of their classroom. In fact, these students have grown more than 40,000 pounds of vegetables alongside their community. Uh, And why are they growing all these plants in the middle of their classroom? Well, joining us to talk about it is Stephen Ritz. He brought the plants into his Bronx classroom to help his students improve their academic performance. Stephen is known as America's teacher. He's joining us today to share with us the power these plants are having on saving his students and their surrounding communities. He's also the author of the book, The Power of a Plant, and uh, founder of the Green Bronx Machine. We uh, are excited to have you here, Stephen. Thank you for your time. Well, I'm just thrilled to be here, and greetings from the South Bronx, where it's a balmy eight degrees today. (laughs) This is why you've got to bring the plants inside, Stephen. Absolutely. Nothing speaks more to that fact than the exact weather conditions of today. I like to say, you know, I grow vegetables, but my vegetables grow students, schools, communities, and opportunities. And, you know, it's funny because since the update, we've grown about 60,000 pounds. Have you really? And to think that we are doing it four stories up in the middle of public housing in a 100-plus-year-old building in the poorest congressional district in America and the formerly least lowest-performing school district in all of New York City is rather remarkable. Now, talk about it, because this isn't even just about food. This isn't about growing your food. You're saying this, this changes their lives. Bill, this is life-changing. Realize I myself have lost over 120 pounds simply by eating the food that I grow with children in school. And, you know, when you grow food and you can provide food week after week, month after month to a community that has limited means and limited access to it, you are changing every aspect of the community. And, of course, the coolest thing is, you know, we're growing it in class, aligned to common core content area instruction. So, you know, while the kids are growing vegetables, they're also growing tremendous academic outcomes. But if children grow fresh food, they eat fresh food. And if they eat fresh food, they are least likely to be involved in counterintuitive behavior. Uh, They are least likely to become obese and develop some of the chronic health problems that plague our community and communities around the world, whether you are rich or poor. Wow. That, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because there, the thing about growing food is it would take us back to kind of the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes a seed well planted gives you a crop of epic proportions. And that is my Green Bronx Machine story, you know, the one that I captured in the power of a plant. If anyone ever ever told me, you know, five years ago, you know, five years ago, I was over 300 pounds, you know, today, 60,000 pounds of vegetables later, you know, my favorite crop is organically grown citizens, graduates, members of the middle class, kids who are going to college, kids who are growing and eating their way to good health and high academic performance. It's awesome sauce. That's cool. Now, what I wonder, though, just listening to you, Stephen, is, is this, is this replicatable anywhere else? Because you are doing it with your power, your personality, your insight, your, your charisma. Could I bring this to a school in Utah and make it work here? Absolutely. So case in point, it is not about the cult of personality. And that's what my story really highlights. That's what the book is all about. How do you make these programs replicable? How do you make them scalable? And we've done just that. I spent about three years focusing on outsourcing the technology. You know, what's something that you could go from a box to a garden, 
in 15 minutes if you're a, 45 minutes if you're a man or 15 minutes if you're a woman <laughs> you'll watch the video and read the instructions which is still one class from here and not need Steve Ritz you know not everyone can be a Steve Ritz nor should they be but everyone can be kind competent caring and follow directions so case in point last year we've touched 22,000 students in Canada and six First Nations with our Green Bronx Machine curriculum and the use of tower gardens. Literally next week, I am headed to the fine, amazing city of Chicago, where in partnership with the Chicago Blackhawks and Jonathan Taves, we are going to put our programming into 20 pilot schools. Um, and to think that the programming here in the South Bronx is being replicated around the world and across the country is absolutely spectacular. Um, when I made the transition from do-it-yourself and kind of being that crazy garden guy to outsourcing the technology, we went from no schools in America to having a tower garden to over 6,000 schools in just three years, and we're just getting started. So it is scalable, affordable, replicable. You know, tower gardens are low-cost. They are the singular most effective tool to growing expeditious amounts of food in class that you can imagine. And again, you know, regardless of seasonality, indoors – using 90% less water and 90% less space. You know, I have children who love reading to their plants. And, uh, you know, we have the garden in the classroom. We don't, I don't put gardens in schools. I wrap entire schools around an indoor garden. I love that. So Plus, it is it's absolutely scalable. The State University of New York is using our curriculum to train both teachers and create workforce development programming. And most importantly, this technology that we use, whether you have one single tower garden in a class or a small community farm or a commercial farm, you know, there are tower garden farms now with thousands of towers that are supplying vendors around the world. You know, it's good agriculture practice certified and it is USDA approved. So we are beyond organic and truly a 21st century career, college and health opportunity in line with Mother Nature and a greater global good. How so amazing. Scalable, yes. Low cost, yes. Check out our curriculum on the Green Browns Machine website. Well, you also get to eat, right? You get to you get to eat your product. You they get they get the benefit of just the other day, in fact, during Christmas break, my wife had a coupon at a salad bar place, and I we told our kids we're going to get a salad, and they all kind of looked at us like, ugh. And uh, but honestly, the best meal we had the entire holiday season was just salads. And my kids want to go back; they want to go back. So the mere fact that they could grow it and love eating it. Um, and talk to it and read to it and consume it and live around it seems like it, it's a no-brainer. Listen, when you put a seed in a child's hand, you're making them a promise. You're making them a promise that that seed is going to grow. And that seed is going to grow into something great. It's going to grow into something epic. And it's going to grow into something that you can either eat or sell. So whether you love vegetables or not, if I put a, a penny in your hand and tell you 40 days later you're going to have a $5 bill, you might start sticking some pennies in the ground, and that's exactly what these children are learning. But most importantly, and sadly, so many of my students come to school hungry. Um, realize food insecurity is an issue around the states, but in this community, it is epic. Mm. Um, you know, 100% of my students qualify for free or reduced lunch, so when they can grow their own happy, healthy, tasty food in school, they get really excited. And most importantly, they start sharing it with their families. And when you can grow enough of it to impact families, you create a demand. And one of the things that I'm most proud of, in addition to happy kids, happy students, healthy students, and school performance, is the fact that we now have connected local families to local farms that are selling, you know, um, basically what we call the ugly fruits and vegetables, hmm. um, things that could not go into a top shelf. But we are supporting local economies, and we're making fresh, healthy, nutritious food available daily for communities 
that never had access to it. And that is win-win-win for everybody. Oh, that is wonderful stuff. Talk about how you, how how it works. Um, who is the is the teacher always in charge of it? How do you delegate to the kids? What do the kids do, and what are they learning as they're doing it? So this is the good part. You know, the kids do all the work. I get all the credit. <laughs> That's a good it's system. An evil system, yeah. But literally, the children, when you have a piece of technology as effective and as simple and easy to use as a tower garden, um, literally, it doesn't run itself. So let's be clear. All living things require maintenance. But it is indoors. It's in a classroom. And a couple of little, you know, a couple of few uh, moments of daily maintenance a day ensures a seamless process. And around that, what you do is you surround that process with jobs, with responsibilities, with the art and science of growing vegetables, with the predictive language, you know, ordinal directions, this the whole thing about, you know, in my class, we do math around, you know, fractions, ratio, proportions, germination, prediction, all that stuff. Our seed cubes are arranged in, in exponential sizes from twos, threes, fours, fives. We look at the power of squares. We look at predicting. We look at measurement. We look at growth. We look at sales. We look at revenue. We look at costs. And then the other thing is we also look at taste. And what's remarkable is the children here in a community where we've had limited means and limited access to healthy fresh food have really developed a taste for exotic things like basils and spinaches and lemon sorrels and arugula and eggplant mm. and strawberries. And the coolest thing is we're growing it in class. And also the other thing is that for children who traditionally have equated farming with almost slave labor or migrant labor or field labor, this is a 21st century opportunity. It's happening in a classroom. It's happening with an iPhone. It's happening in a school uniform. No school uniforms or no precious sneakers or clothes are getting dirty on my shift. It's all happening in a classroom. The art, you know, the art, the wonder, the aspiration, the inspiration of growing something and to see it grow so quickly because not only do we grow with 90% less water and 90% less space, we grow a lot faster. And so the children really on a day-to-day basis are excited to come in and see what they're growing and when they can eat it and when they can clip it and when they can cook it and what they can do with it. So that's very exciting in and of itself. And along the way, we've created in the least likely place the next generation of environmental stewards, which is absolutely phenomenal because when kids understand that the sum of the inputs equals the output – you know, that the same water that's in our toilets and in our sinks or running out of a fire hydrant is the very water we need to grow our precious plants, they start becoming water conscious. They start becoming electric conscious. They start becoming concerns about things that, you know, they never would have because it was never part of their landscape. Now they realize that just like plants, they are part of a living, breathing ecosystem and we're part of something much greater. And being responsible to it and caring for it, you know, creates a whole new culture within a school. Because when you teach children about nature, you teach them to nurture. And when we teach children to nurture, we as a society collectively embrace our better nature. That's what the power of a plant is all about. That's powerful. Well planted can give you a crop of epic proportions. And if anyone is case in point, I am. No, you and if you go to Green Box, uh, Green Bronx Machine dot org you can watch videos and and these are these are the poorest schools in the country, but high rise schools and you'll see children maybe on the 10th floor or whatever of a school that is just a brick it's just a brick cement structure but inside their classroom you see life you see green life growing and it 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 does it changes the scenery it changes the feel of the room 
Children love being here. Yes, please go to the Green Bronx Machine website, watch some of our videos, and realize that even that Green Bronx Machine website, that's student-generated. The students run off social media. So, you know, imagine connecting thousands of people around the world for something good. That's what this is all about. You know, I like to say that we are poised, ready, willing, and able to export our talent and diversity in ways people have never imagined. And for many years, people thought the Bronx was burning. Now we are blooming. That's so beautiful. Even if you get out there and like the Facebook page. The children love tracking the likes. So everybody listening, <laughs> hang up with me and go like the Green Bronx Machine Facebook page. Children set metrics for me when I talk. It's all about accountability. Um, it's all about responsibility. And it's, it's all about engagement and growing something greater. And that's what this is really all about. We have a partner classroom. Believe it or not, it's very funny because here in the South Bronx, we are partnering with a classroom in Kansas. Oh, neat. And in the backyard of the school of Kansas, they have cows. And we take our little uh, computer screen on my, my FaceTime phone sometimes and look out the window and these children see 30-story buildings and can't believe it in Kansas. And, you know, we can't believe that they have cows so big <laughs> in Kansas. But when the children here see cows, they start thinking, maybe I need to eat less meat. And that's a good thing. Interesting. It's a good thing for everybody. Yeah. You know, it's education. It's shared humanity. Yeah. Is on your in one of your articles you you talk about the fact that there are certain things that we could grow that that really uh, you know they're kind of edible good starter plants that kids could you know start to garner their interest and, and grow their interest in gardening. Give us give us some things that we could maybe plant at home, put in our windowsill or whatever, and and just start our own little garden that the kids might be interested in. Super. So if you're at home and you don't have a lot of money, you have a little bit of time, there are things that I call the unders and the overs that are almost, you know, goof-proof. And what are the unders? Things that grow under the ground, like carrots and radishes, things that grow quickly and don't require a lot of soil. You could take a two-liter water bottle, split it down the middle, and start growing. On top of it, what do you put? You put your lettuces, your basic greens, your arugula, your spring mixes, your basils, your spinaches. Children love spinach. Oh, my God, you know, you tie it into Popeye and talk about, you know, <laughs> vitamin content in there. The children love lemon sorrel. Who knew? I didn't even know what lemon sorrel was. You know, literally five years ago, I couldn't name 10 kinds of vegetables. I'm now growing 37 kinds of fruits, vegetables, and herbs daily in my classroom with kids who didn't even know they could farm. So it's amazing. Is possible. But I always say keep it simple. Um, you know, do what's replicable. Do what's scalable. Do what's manageable. Um, you know, you always start with, I say, the unders and the overs. Stay away from things that need to be, um, you know, pollinated like tomatoes and peppers because that's a little bit more scientific, but always great to graduate to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you will never grow wrong growing radishes, microgreens. I have children who grow microgreens. We plant them on a Friday. They come in on a Monday. Everything is sprouted. We measure the half-inch increments in terms of metrics and, you know, all the math activities through the weekend. Wow. On Friday, we get to eat them and do it again. It is awesome sauce. How great is that? Well, Stephen, I appreciate your time and just your great energy, your insight. Again, the name of the book is The Power of a Plant by Stephen Ritz, who's also the founder of Green Bronx Machine. Go check out that website, greenbronxmachine.org. And, uh, and see what they're doing there in the Bronx. Also, hey, maybe this is something you could suggest bring up to your PTA or at least start your own little, uh, your own little planting at home so you, so you can start creating life on your own and teaching your kids the wonderful uh, gifts of creating life. Powerful, powerful stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Straight ahead, a little Coach's Corner, The Power of Optimism. Up next.
Welcome back, friends, and again, Happy New Year to you. We just uh, listened to um, Stephen Ritz, and if you notice, super positive, super passionate, optimistic about life, and he's making a change in the world. Um, He wrote the book, The Power of a Plant, and the whole time he's talking to me, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, no, totally. I, I totally buy your passion. I buy your energy. And I started realizing that how many of us just don't have any of that positivity, any of that energy? We, well, geez, it's just exhausting. The reality of our lives, I'm finding out, is um, it's hard. It's hard to stay positive and passionate especially without a purpose. And um, one of the things I guess I would just challenge all of us to do this new year, it's great to get out and get your New Year's resolutions made, all of that. That's wonderful. Uh, Especially, though, remember that most of those we won't finish, um, and we will just kind of go about it and gently slide back to where we were um, last year. What we could do, though, not to be a pessimist here, is we need to find some purpose this year, some Thing different this year that's going to make a difference for you, but something that will make a difference for you from the inside out. When you look at somebody like Stephen Ritz, who's changing children's lives to the degree that he is, he somehow connected into a deeper purpose that's bigger than himself. So just a little assignment I want to give you as you're driving around thinking about life and starting your first week back from from your uh, holiday vacation is please focus on a bigger uh, on your bigger purpose your deeper yes there's a great quote that says it's easy to say no when you have a deeper yes burning inside of you do you know what your deeper yes your deeper yeses are do you know what really drives you what really moves you what is it that you want to be known for um and and let's seriously exert a little energy a little time right now this week even today to try to figure out a way that we can know what moves us. We need something different in our minds, in our thoughts, in how we look at life if we want to uh, to have a difference in our life. Uh, just recently, um, last night, in fact, the uh, the leader of the, and the president of the LDS Church, President Thomas S. Monson, passed away um, at the age of 90 years old. Um, he was at 23, as a young 23-year-old man, He was made a Mormon bishop, which is like a leader of a little Mormon church group. Um, But that group was filled with a lot of widows who were kind of in a more inner city world. And his job at 23 was to immediately start caring for the widows. And I think it formed in him a really um, incredible desire to, to actually administer and to take care of the one person, that their one need. And um, as he has passed, you know, a lot of LDS uh, faithful are are mourning his passing, plus every major newspaper is covering it, every major news outlet is covering it. But what, sometimes what they might get into are the the latest topics of, you know, gay marriage and LDS church and other topics, women in the priesthood and the LDS church. But what they may be missing would be the 70-plus years that this man spent serving the individual, taking care of 
the one person. And uh, in an article that I read from the Deseret News, uh, a story that they told when he was a young bishop, uh, you know, 23 or whatever years of age, he's sitting in a meeting where his church leader is talking, and he feels this prompting go off in his head, his mind, his spirit that says, I need to go visit this one person. I need to go visit this one person. But he didn't want to stand up and, you know, make a scene and leave a meeting that his leader was talking in. So he he just basically struggled through the meeting and finally left at the end of the the person's speech he left and went to the to the hospital where this person was and when he got there he um found out that the man had just passed away and it devastated him and president monson left the hospital went outside and just started sobbing because here he had had a prompting to leave and to go and do and to take care of the one person and it, uh, and he, he didn't do it, he felt, at that point. And he made a promise to himself that from then on, when he had a prompting, he would always go uh, answer the prompting when he felt it. And I felt it. I, we've had it in my own personal family life. Uh, he had visited. I've actually heard two or three stories of people close to me that he felt prompted to go visit, and he visited them and, and served them. So somehow we need to have that passion in our lives. And we need to find what's that guiding principle we're going to live our life by. For President Monson, it was the fact that he wanted to serve the one, go after the one, go rescue the one. But what will be the thing that will motivate you? What will be the thing that will drive you? Ask yourself, who are the people you respect and revere the most? And what, what is it that they do? Can you come up with your one thing, the one thing that you most want to be remembered by at your funeral? What do you want people to say about you as you pass? What's the one thing you want to be known for? And will you spend some time today thinking about it? We're not going to create uh, somebody as powerful and and as impactful as a President Thomas Monson if we don't um, spend a little time figuring out what our one thing is. So today, will you please just take that advice? Go start figuring out what is the one thing you need to bring to this world that if you don't bring it, it's not going to be here. It might just be you know, an attentive listener. It might be a, a service-oriented person. It might be a giver. Whatever it is, let's discover it in ourselves today, and then let's start offering it for the rest of the year. A little advice from your coach right here on the Matt Townsend Show, Dr. Matt. Uh, again, love having you back. Love being back with you. Our goal, again, is to help you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, there's nothing crazier than looking in your backyard and all of a sudden you got a moose all tied up in your uh, swing set. Really? By the way, I... How about a mouse in your uh, pantry? How about a mouse in the house or a moose in the swing set? Uh, I have had this happen. In my in-law's backyard, They there was a full-on moose. Really? The, the, the department of... What, the, what do they call it? Like the... Department of Moosen Moosen mm-hmm. had to come in, tranquilize it, and carry that bad boy out. So the reason I brought up the Amazon Prime uh, Rose Bowl parade commentary with yeah. Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon is because they do. There's a section of the commentary where they sing the "We Are Farmers" jingle, <laughs> right? And there is a farmers insurance commercial that has a moose who is stuck in a playground set. 
and uh, is thrashing around, oh. and the playground set ends up going through a motorhome. And as a viewer, you think, did that really happen? It's a little I'm extreme. Not, I'm not sure about the motorhome being, you know, destroyed by this playground, but apparently it does happen. It happened to you. It happened yeah, to this person. It's real. So, uh, yeah, same thing. This, uh, let's see, this was in Spokane County, and uh, wildlife officials had to be called in. And guess where they decided to, guess how they handled the situation? How? What did they do? Well, when you, when you want to help an animal of that size and of that uh, nature, you need to kind of put it down temporarily. Like like tranquilize like, tranquilize the bad yeah. boy yeah so they they tranked it in the behind oh yeah yeah that's where you got to hit it and uh, it did the trick because they were able to help the moose and then when the, the when the moose woke up all it had was a little scratch and a little mark by its eye it didn't puncture its eye or anything like oh. that and then it just got up and went away went away yeah you, well you you can't try to get it untangled nine hundred pounds no they're huge of moose. That's a lot of moosin. Sometimes, do you wish you could be tranked sometimes? Oh, no. When I had my gallbladder out, they did trank me. Ooh. They just said, okay, dude, you got – I'll give you a three-second head start. Take off. And I and started you, running and then – You're not even 900 pounds no, either. They darted me. But uh, it was the greatest tranquilization I've ever had. <laughs> and then I slept for two days. It was so nice. Yeah. So yeah. If, well, uh, if you've got a moose in your backyard, just get yourself a trank and call uh, Wildlife Protection. Yep, and they'll remove it for you. Wildlife Protection. That's the name. And uh, the, they're the, the, the kinder, gentler tranking people. They trank you with love. Don't get a, don't get a mouse trap for a moose no. like I did. Yeah, that wasn't – it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Hey, stick with us, folks. Uh, doing what we can on this program to help you understand how to trank a moose. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday to you. And uh, man, you made it through the week because it was a shorter week for many of you. Hope, uh, hope you're having a good day so far. We've got uh, so much to talk about, including the, the bomb has, is still hitting the East Coast. Airport's still shut. Flight's still delayed. Oh, I thought you were talking about the bomb of fire and fury. Oh, no. That bomb. It's a different bomb. Also, uh, seriously, I don't know what it's doing. It's uh, Every minute, it seems like a different bomb is going off. Bannon loves the president. The president loves Bannon. Then they hate each other. Then they love each other again. Then uh, Wolf, the author of the book uh, Fire and Fury, is on television saying that Bannon's done a complete turnaround, figured out that the president can't lead the country. Ah! Well, and Terry and I were it's talking crazy. about this before the show that President Trump probably isn't doing any himself any favors by bringing all this attention on the book. It's oh. probably helping the sales. No, but he said they, they, they did a cease and desist order. And so cancel it. We're not – do not send that book out. And they decided to up the well, date. They went, we have tapes. 
yeah. of the interviews, the 200 interviews in the White House that no, they he did. he didn't have access. No, he did. To the... And, um, yeah, they went, okay, we'll just move this up. It was supposed to come out Tuesday. It's yeah. out right now. It's out. Go get it. Yeah, so you... you it's do, now... You, Michael Wolf this morning thanked the president for making his book number one. Wow. <laughs> he put so much attention on it. It's, it's now the number one selling book. Yeah. You just have to be quiet. Shh. No one would notice. No one would notice. Well, he tried. Shh. Last night, President Trump put out some tweets not about this topic, trying to oh. turn the public opinion. Yeah. It didn't work. That's interesting that he thanked them, because yeah. when the filmmakers of that OJ documentary won the Oscar, I don't remember them thanking OJ. Not yeah. to say that the president has no. done anything like as that. bad as OJ, allegedly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. yeah. Good point. Um uh, I, I guess, though, here's the weird thing, because it's uh, a lot of news picking up all the stories, but it's still um, – there's been things in the book that have already been discredited. He's seen as kind of an extreme writer. Sure. And yet it's getting all of this attention and interviews as if he's Woodward and Bernstein. Well, he sat in the White House and talked to people. Yeah. That's that's where I think the credibility for this is coming is right. he – no one denies he was in the building. Oh yeah, right. So it's like, and, and he's, and and he not, and he had a lot of access to, I mean, to a lot of people. No, this was funny. I read this last night. He wrote a Michael Wolf, uh, the the uh, the writer, put out an article in the Hollywood Reporter about this and how he gained the access to the building. Now he came through Bannon, got into the White House. He's talking with Trump. And he he says he goes I want to write a book about you and Trump says a book he, he he goes he said a book questioning kind of losing interest and he says I hear a lot of people want to write books this is Trump added clearly not understanding why anyone would want to he goes do you know Ed Klein he wrote several anti Hillary books and he goes yeah. I'd rather have him write a book about me <laughs> and and he goes he's a great guy I think he should write a book but sure. Trump sure. seemed to say, knock yourself out. So Trump yeah. didn't say yes, and he didn't say no when, the, when Wolf asked for, can I come to the White House, be a fly on the wall, right. and write a book about the first days of your campaign. And people heard this conversation. And so when they saw Michael Wolf on their list of you know, requests, they're like, sure. So they I let guess, him in. Yeah, I guess the president's for this. And so he goes- He's the, in the building. He goes, for weeks, he goes, I'd come, I'd stay at the Hay Adams Hotel. I'd make appointments with various senior staffers who put my name in the system, right, to get in yeah, the front door, yeah. and then wandered across the street into the White House, sat down on a sofa day after day, talking to all kinds of people about what's going on. And they were willing, they wanted oh, to come talk wow. to me. And then he says- he spoke with top officials, uh, lower-level aides. He goes. Uh, he wrote in the Hollywood Reporter. He goes, my in my impression of talking with them and observing them all is that they all one hundred percent came to believe that he was incapable of functioning in the job. Wow! Mm. So he wrote that yesterday. Ah! So again, it just you can't. You really can't stuff. question if he was in the building and had access. And I think that's like what you're saying. They're treating him like a Woodward and Bernstein. Mm-hmm. He's really not. Mm-mm. And he's got, as, as Trump keeps saying, you look at his past and it's kind of questionable the way he does his reporting. It's not, you know, all the way fact-based. Yeah. But he's in the building. So it's like, how, uh. do you, how do you balance that? So who would his deep throat be? Would ha- it be Bannon? Apparently half Everybody. the staff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other thing is there but was... But Bannon was a big source on but there was But okay. ma- there's major division on the staff anyway. So everyone would talk about everyone else too. Mm-hmm. So it really would have been a free-for-all. 
Yeah, which is with that, and that matches up with stuff the Washington Post, yeah. the New York Times, they Politico. They call him the Wolf in the Hen House or whatever. The yeah. Wolf was in there, and nobody. And I guess everybody thought he had permission. He had, had permission because he's there. Well, it, it shows you that there was no reporting to anybody. Mm-hmm. No one had any sort of system where now he wouldn't get oh. in. Because yeah. Kelly wouldn't let him in the no. door. But Reince Priebus was like, oh, I don't know, the president the- didn't say no. <laughs> what, what else is weird about this? This is probably more worrisome to the president than the Mueller investigation. Oh, yeah. This because is public perception. This, is, this yeah. is PR, and he hates bad press. Oh, yeah. This is bad, bad press. I mean, oh. We've heard the stories of how he'd call the gossip magazines in New York and kind of feed them stories to make himself look good. Yeah. And now those same sort of reporters are the ones coming after him. Mm. But the stories are crazy. Yeah. And that's the other thing is they're just they're kind of fun. And then but then we apparently some of them are obviously wrong. Maggie Haberman, who yeah. writes for The New York Times. Yeah. She's, she's coming she's out. Come with out a big... She says it's it's thin. It's 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 a good read, but it's thinly reported. The yeah. editing could use some some help. And so she's kind of knocking it down because she's the other person oh, that yeah. has this kind of access. So she's like, hey, get away from my turf. Yeah, this mm. is mine, man. But she says there's parts of it that have been proven to be untrue. Granted, she didn't say which ones, which parts. Yeah, she'll have to come out and, I guess, validate that. She's, she was on CNN saying this. But, but she, they asked her for examples. She goes, They'll come out. You know, like, okay. Maybe somehow this could improve the public's perception of the president. I don't think so. Jimmy Kimmel last night said, is this actually Trump being a businessman? And he's got maybe a cut of the sales of this book, so he's trying yeah, to pump up sales. <laughs> bumping up sales. But Trump did come out and say it's full of lies. Yes. Uh, but apparently some truths, maybe. Yeah. And uh, he had zero access, except he To did him. It. Right. 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 No one ever talked to me, so it's not true. Yeah. But, I mean, but... he did talk to 200 other people, hundreds of hours. Yeah. By the way, this is also why you you really want to be organized. Like you you couldn't see this really happening in a Trump presidency, right? Because a Trump, I mean, mean not Obama? A, an Obama presidency, because yeah. no one would have access unless it was no. the biographer to right. be that he wanted. Right, and he's vetted, and he's your guy. You, you don't know what let he's going to do. Journalist, no slash author in it's just wandering around. Yeah. I mean, you can almost see that he could just wander freely all day. He said he uh, – Wolf said he was in meetings that he probably shouldn't have been in. But he was there. Like, no one seemed to mind. Like classified. I don't know if classified, but, you know, it's just kind of meetings. meetings that aren't really <laughs> for just some guy walking around the hallways. Oh, man. Wouldn't that be funny if you go back and start looking at a lot of the videos and pictures and it's Bannon and Pence and Wolf. Just, he's just in the Wolf's back. in the back just listening. Huh, what's he doing over there? Sharpening his pencil. In his pajamas. Uh, interesting stuff. Okay, well, what other headlines do we have, Terry? Anything else in the news we should be paying attention to? Um, so Wolf went on uh, NBC's Today Show. He says uh, Trump's proving the point of his book. He goes, not only is he helping me sell books, but he's proving the point. Uh, this man does not read. He does not listen. He's like a pinball just shooting off the sides. They all say... He's like a child. That's what he said this morning on oh, Today boy. Show. Uh, joining the esteemed ranks of Little Marco, Low Energy Jeb, Cricket Hillary, and Lion Ted, President Trump is now calling Steve Bannon Sloppy Steve. Slop- hey, people have been calling him Sloppy for years. Yeah, he's got like the double-colored shirts. He doesn't quite. Yeah. yeah so. um, other news, President Donald Trump directed his White House counsel to tell Attorney General Jeff Sessions to not recuse himself from the Justice Department's investigation into potential ties between Russia and 
and the Trump campaign, according to a person familiar with the matter. The conversation between Don McGahn, the president's White House counsel, and Sessions took place on the president's orders and occurred just before the attorney general announced that he would step aside from the ongoing inquiry into the Russian meddling Mm. in the 2016 election, according to a person with knowledge of the interaction. This was first reported by the New York Times. Other media outlets have have also confirmed the story. Two other people confirmed details of the conversation between McGahn and Sessions. All three people spoke on conditions of anonymity to the Associated Press to avoid publicly discussing an ongoing investigation. The episode is known to special counsel Robert Mueller and his team of prosecutors and is likely of interest to them as they look into whether Trump's actions as president, including the May firing FBI director uh, James Comey, amounted to improper efforts to obstruct the Russia investigation. Oh boy! So now you have that, that just yeah. more uh, evidence moving towards the obstruction charges. You know, it's really um, it's crazy. Also, Spicer's now out there. I mean, there's a lot of leaking coming out of this. There is White House now. There is now. There's <laughs> there's some names attached to the leaks too. So, uh, yeah. but and this is weird because <clears throat> the leaking's happening now without Bannon in there and without Priebus in there. It is. Who were supposedly leaking The before. leakers, yeah. As a monster winter storm rolls out, East Coast residents will face a deep freeze Friday from the Mid-Atlantic to New England, the National Weather Service reports. Numerous records show and record low highs are expected with the Arctic air mass, with some of the coldest temperatures ever recorded expected for Boston and New York City. The Weather Channel forecaster, uh, Weather Channel has said coastal areas in the northwest uh, or excuse me, coast areas in the northeast may experience temperatures in the single digits. Wind chill mm. factors making it feel as cold as negative 15 degrees from Philadelphia to Boston. Thursday's powerful winter storm brought hurricane force winds, blanketed the region in snow, flooded coastal areas, including Boston Harbor, Cape Cod, and North and South Shore areas. Did you see that in yeah. downtown Boston? Unbelievable. The There's water. this video of like a fire truck, big yeah. ladder driving truck driving through. through, and the water's up to its doors. You're like, wow. But then that's going to freeze. Yes, it is. So you're going to have, what, a huge ice skating ring? Yes. If, oh, with, if the temperatures drop to negative 15, yeah. Uh. Or if they'll feel that cold. Uh, uh, speaking of New England, there's problems with the Patriots. What? An explosive report from ESPN today describes serious tensions at the top of the New England Patriots that are threatening to rip the heart out of the five-time Super Bowl champion winners. According to the report, friction among quarterback Tom Brady, coach Bill Belichick, and owner Robert Kraft has reached such a boiling point this season that several insiders said it could be the final season the successful combination remains together. What? At the center of the feuding, Brady Brady's reported devotion to his business partner slash training guru, Alex Guerrero, and Belichick's effort to distance the, quote, body coach from the team. Patriots officials called Guerrero's methods cult-like in their sway over players, particularly Brady. Belichick is also reported to have bristled at the 40-something quarterback's demands for a new lucrative long-term contract, despite his success at his age already being nearly unprecedented in NFL history. In a, wow. in a statement, the Patriots officials say the report had several inaccuracies, multiple examples given that are absolutely did not occur, but did not give specific examples. So let me get this straight. Yeah, go ahead. Brady's basically in an exercise cult. Yeah. <laughs> and Belichick doesn't like it, and he uh-huh. doesn't want the cult leader to come in and take over all of the other athletes' brains. And there's a contract dispute. And Brady sort of. wants more money to play more years, and you got to sway Kraft and Belichick yep. to make that happen. Right. Wow. And they're probably the team favored to win the Super Bowl. And you may end up seeing Tom Brady like with the Buccaneers. No. Okay. 
They'll figure it out. Yeah, they'll figure it out. Every, all this happens, and they never say anything. Right. It's always sources say. Hey, you know. Colts come and go. <laughs> dime a it, dozen. It is a dime a dozen. And finally, this is more of a personal note. Trying, I want to get your guys' okay. opinion on yeah. where what I should do next. Okay, yeah. Piece of cake. All right. So over the past seven weeks, 58 people in the U.S. and Canada have become ill from a dangerous strain of E. coli bacteria. Now they're saying likely from eating romaine lettuce. <gasps> like you do every which day. Which is the key element of my salad every Whoa. afternoon. Yeah, we're done with that. Yeah. Hot pocket. So it says in the U.S., the infections <laughs> have occurred in 13 states. Okay, California, Connecticut, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Vermont, and Washington State. That's 13 if you were Boy. counting. Right, so all those different states. Yeah. Well, just don't eat your salad there. Five people in the U.S. have been hospitalized. One has died, according to the, US, Ooh, the yeah. Center for Disease Control. Yeah. There's also been one death in Canada, but, you know, Canadian health authorities identified romaine lettuce as the source of the outbreak in Canada and are advising oh. people in the country's eastern provinces to consider eating other types of salad. Iceberg? That, yeah. We'll get to that. Okay. In the U.S., government health officials are investigating the outbreak but have stopped short of recommending people avoiding romaine lettuce or other foods. So hmm. don't, they're not saying avo- get away from it, avoid it yet, but... They probably need to, it sounds like. Consumer Reports food safety experts are advising that consumers stop eating romaine lettuce until the cause of the outbreak can be identified and the offending product. Well, that's Consumer Reports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's not like, so we're not going to get a product recall. Things aren't, you know, products not going to be removed from the shelves. The Romaine Lettuce Association's not going to shut the doors. So my question is, I am not in one of these states where over the last seven weeks, 58 people have been. Or are you in the next state? You might be in That's the my question. Mm. Do I roll the dice and stick with my tasty romaine lettuce? Because mm. no. iceberg lettuce is essentially just kind of fibrous water. Mm-hmm. There's no it's, taste. It's, yeah. it's kind of gross. So this is sounding water. This is sounding as bad as those gas station nachos with yeah. the Doritos. Maybe that's what you ought to go to. Nachos? Yeah. Have a big nacho burrito. No, I did that on New Year's <laughs> Eve. <laughs> Did you? Chicken chipotle nachos, big, huge. Ooh. I have video. It's good. You know, I'm, I'm predicting this is, we're not going to, the next end of the world movie is not going to be about some no. tropical storm no. or earthquake. It's going to be uh, this salad. Romaine lettuce. lettuce. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what should I do? Should I? Hot pocket it. It hasn't been here, though. <laughs> right? never... It's kind of around my region, but Have you ever heard of somebody dying because of a hot pocket? They should have. No. It, it was probably a contributing sure, factor. you burn your mouth a little bit. Right. And if they don't remove that cardboard sleeve that's yeah. supposed to help with the cooking, mm-hmm. <laughs> come on. Yeah, some people don't know that you're not, you're not supposed to eat that. <laughs> but uh, I, it's, that's actually scaring me because today is the first time I think I've ever brought a salad to work. Mm. Is it romaine? Today is bring your salad to work day. Or is it kale? No, it's not Because your kale. wife's big on kale. No, she's, we don't like kale. A lot of times there's that garden <laughs> one that looks like you just went in the backyard yeah. and pulled a bunch of weeds. No, totally. Yeah. Uh, it, um, it's, it's, not, it's not romaine lettuce. It's probably more icebergy. You think so? What you brought? Okay. So yeah. what should I do? Should oh, well, I continue with my why romaine? Don't, why or? don't you do this? Uh, this is going to sound totally foreign to you. Mm. Why don't you mix it up a little bit? And instead of having a salad for 780 days straight, yeah. the exact same salad, right. why don't you mix it up and uh-huh. now find something else to put your other fixings on? I don't want to think mm. about it, though. I just want to make my lunch and oh, no, but, sit down. But all you'd have to do, really, is maybe mm. you could go pour your fixings uh-huh. on top of celery or, or on kale? top of- 
Yeah. Do better. all the other leafy no. greens like kale, maybe Ooh, go to collard I- greens. Ivy, mm. parsley, spinach. No, go to spinach. No. Parsley is going to be a good one. No, but like, like really? You don't like spinach? Uh, I'm not a big spinach fan. Oh. If you put it in like an omelet with a bunch of sausage and bacon. Yeah, you can cover yeah. it. Yeah, it was good. So, I had that the other so day. So just do that. Maybe, maybe make an omelet for the next couple nah. weeks. Too much work, isn't it? Beets. Yeah. You know what? Maybe it, you could do beets. It's more just the work. I you, need something simple. But you also seem like you're pretty fit. You could handle a little E. coli breakout. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Just Should, risk it. If I, if I, if I chanced E. coli mm-hmm. and I actually contracted E. coli, that'd be good for the show. That'd be great. I that could, I could great. come in and Horrible describe for myself. Us, though. The half cell. It's, well, not, we, it's not contagious. Mm, mm, well, we just keep, had it, it? We keep him in his producer. Bit. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. I have a glass wall. I'll just sit over there. We don't even have to talk to him. <laughs> let's do it. Experiment for the show. I'm gonna I love see if we can said, get... love how you said, let's do it. <laughs> I'm going to see if we can send you up to Seattle, up to Washington. See if I can contract it yeah. there. Just put me in you ground zero. You don't need to go out of state to contract E. coli. No, I mean, you can get it. Just you it's, know. it's beautiful up there, though. Yeah. I would almost be willing to contract it just to visit Seattle. <laughs> you know what? Um, for anybody that's out there that's had E. coli. Come for the E. coli. Nuts. Stay for the view. <laughs> <laughs> I came for the E. coli. But I love the fish market. Um, okay. Well, I, just sort of I, torn. I, I think like, you ought to risk it. I don't feel threatened. Yeah. I feel like it's... You know, it's out there. I'm aware of this. Yeah, you know that. What, if I just wash my, my, my vegetables, aren't I, I'm okay, right? I don't know. Bleach works? them. Bleach them. Bleach, yeah. bleach the heck out when of them. When in doubt, bleach it out. That's what Grandma used to say. <laughs> bleach the lettuce. That would add to the taste. <laughs> oh, geez. You really could mix it up, though. Nah. You could just try some, some for just a week or two, until mm. this goes away, okay. just try some iceberg lettuce. Nah, it's really gross. It is gross, but it's, it's not as gross as E. coli, I promise you. Just imagine, like, going and purchasing a bottle of E. coli okay. and just pouring it all over your salad. That's right, gross. Yeah. E. coli. <laughs> it's right oh, next to the bacon brother. bits, right? Totally. Okay. Hey, uh, up next, we're going to be visiting a, a big issues going on right now. A Yale psychiatrist came out, briefed members of Congress on Trump's mental fitness. Is it appropriate for psychiatrists to be diagnosing a president that they've never seen? And by the way, that they've never interacted with except what they see in, in public press and public media. Up next, we'll be talking to a gentleman that says, no, no, we probably ought not be doing that for a variety of reasons. We'll be discussing it straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, over and over, uh, we'll hear just in passing comments, sometimes even by professionals, uh, health professionals, mental health professionals, about the, the mental health and the, and the psychological or psychiatric strength of President Trump. And the question, I guess, when we get into it is, is that appropriate? I mean, is that something that psychiatrists should be doing, um, is, is out there talking about the mental health and the mental stability of uh, of our leaders, and is that a good precedence to start? So we wanted to to actually get into the issue a, a lot more. We found a wonderful article in the conversation by our next guest, Arash Javanbach, about why psychiatrists should not be involved in presidential politics, and uh, and it's really filled with some pretty interesting insight that many of us may not have thought about. Arash, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Good morning, Matt. It's a pleasure. And again, you're a psychiatrist, a certified board psychiatrist, an MD from Wayne State University. Arash, talk to us about um, what you're seeing. I mean, should psychiatrists, should mental health professionals be be commenting on the mental health of our president if they've never met with the man? So there has been a there has been a long-standing argument about this issue. So there are two sides in this uh, in the story. The tradition has been what we refer to as Goldwater Rule, which uh, basically happened after Fact Magazine uh, during an election in 1964. I think uh, uh, sent a poll about uh, mental health of Barry Goldwater to uh, some psychiatrists. And then there was a lawsuit, and then American Psychiatric Association, following on that, set an ethical rule uh, which uh, basically says a psychiatrist who has not examined a person without their consent and does not have uh, their consent to announce the diagnosis or a, or a professional opinion about the person, they're not allowed to make a judgment, uh, a professional opinion or diagnosis mm. about that person, whether a public figure or a person uh, or a private person. But then on the other side of the argument, there's a group of uh, psychiatrists who are arguing that um, the current president may be dangerous because of his mental health situation, and they refer to uh, another rule which is called the duty to warn. So, but basically, due to the warning is that if I am, if I have a patient and I see that patient and that patient poses a threat to another person, I have the duty to warn the authorities and the potential victim. Again, APA uh, argues that this well, this is not this, this that rule does not apply to making comments about public figures who are not in a doctor-patient relationship with a psychiatrist. Yeah, right. It's interesting because we're, we're, I guess now we're, we're starting to have to have discussions, um, and, and I think it's really important, about mental health. We see it in the news all the time with mental health issues where a gunman has a mental health issue and then goes out and shoots people. And you can see that that would be a beautiful place, I guess, to use the duty to warn uh, rule. Uh, then there's the, the whole Goldwater rule. But part of this is, I guess, this is just the discussion we need to be having, it seems like, a rush that about mental health. Because by the minute we start casting aspersions about the president's mental health, we may be setting ourselves up for a lot of other issues, right? That's true. And that is the argument that I have in this paper, that regardless of the ethical issues— or if the president does or does not have a mental health condition. I've been looking at it from a cost-benefit approach. Basically, what is the benefit? What is it going to do? And to what good does it do? And what bad does it do? And uh, there are a lot of serious concerns that I have about this. Uh, so one is about the stigma. Stigma has been around the psychiatry and mental illness for centuries. People have been demonized. People with mental illness have been demonized, have been marginalized. And there's always been a negative view. And just recently, with all the progress that we have made in advocacy and actually in science, learning about the illnesses and knowing that, well, the disease of a brain is not that different than a disease of pancreas, like, such as diabetes, right? Right. And we have treatments for these conditions. So we are destigmatizing and we're removing that uh, old embarrassments that the person with a mental illness could have in the past. And now in such an emotionally charged political sphere, 
when psychiatrists and mental illness are linked to these conditions and linked to the politics, then you can imagine people who have whether positive or negative emotions about the political sphere or the current president, how their approach and how their view and how their attitude towards mental illness, towards psychiatrists, and towards a person with a psychiatric illness could change. Mm. And I think that can do a damage which is hard to reverse. Well, I think you're exactly right. And then you make a great point also in the article saying, and I guess that means that in the next uh, presidential election, we'll have a completely different group of psychiatrists that are uh, of a completely different political persuasion that will then be commenting on the psychological health of that person. Very true. So it's going to be a Pandora's box opens, right? right? So if we decide to break that rule that I am not allowed to make a professional comment about a person that I have not consensually examined and I don't have their consent or and order from the legal authorities to announce their diagnosis or whatever professional opinion I have about them, because uh, to be fair, a lot of psychiatrists who have been commenting about the current president mentioned that they are not diagnosing, they are just making professional comments, hmm. which to me and to, to the APA doesn't make a difference. Both yeah. for, if any professional comment is, uh, has to follow the ethical rules of medical practice. Uh, but when this becomes a tradition, of course, three years from now, a few psychiatrists from the other side of the aisle may come out and just uh, make a diagnosis about the other candidate. Mm-hmm. And it's, it will become a huge mess in the business of uh, in the politics. And then, if I can make a diagnosis about the president, why can't I make a diagnosis about my boss, about mm-hmm. celebrity, about I don't know about my neighbor, about the people I don't like, or about the people I like, right? And, and then so, we and then we turn into what we saw with uh, the White House communication director Anthony Scarmucci when he said when he threw out. I guess kind of uh, fleetingly he threw out a, uh, called his enemy a paranoid schizophrenic. So then we're then we're throwing out terms without any real I mean it really it just seems to cheapen and lessen and 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 stigmatize mental health. Yeah, and actually uh, a colleague and I wrote a piece about uh, what Scaramucci did and using paranoid schizophrenic as an insult besides all the other profanity and F-words that he used to accuse uh previous and to my to our surprise most of the media outlets and uh, medical professional communities were insensitive to using a diagnosis of one percent of the u.s population yeah as yeah. an insult and uh, well well he, he he basically did an undignified approach of an uninformed person but when it comes from a professional psychiatrist it's going to be more uh, I mean, I would see that psychiatrists being more ethical and uh, less uh, emotionally involved in uh, making such comments. But at the same time, yeah, it's going to make the stigma. And the thing is that uh, when emotions are highly charged, people are subject to uh, stereotyping, right? Yeah. They can divide division groups. And one of the things that is happening in this political sphere is that a lot of emotions are involved and there is division. It's us and them, us and the others. Mm. And when you stereotype, this stereotype can happen to psychiatrists and psychiatric business. Like a lot of people may uh, see most of psychiatrists or a lot of psychiatrists with a bunch of uh, 
liberals who are making, uh, who are using their profession to push their political agenda, right? Mm -hmm. Not that I'm claiming that is what is happening, but a lot of people, let's say, like a third of this, uh, the, the, based on the recent polls, a third of this uh, country are supporting the current president. How would they feel about psychiatry? Right. A person, a super conservative supporter of Trump who is living in a rural area has been dealing and arguing with uh, teachers of their kid that, hey, your kid for ADHD needs to see a psychiatrist. And now, how would that person feel about yeah. taking their kids to this? How would they feel about seeing their own psychiatrist? How would they feel about... How would that affect their compliance and adherence to their treatment? We have come a very rocky path in the field of psychiatry to show to people that we have real illnesses of the brain that are treatable and we can help a lot. And in reality, we can help a lot. We can change the lives of people and their families. And what my first intention for getting involved here is advocacy for my field and for my patients and protect them. Yeah, no, I think it's great. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Arash Jaffenbach, who is a board-certified psychiatrist from Wayne State University, and he's helping us understand why psychiatrists should not be involved in politics as far as diagnosing people, as far as uh, you know, putting out a, they they would say they're not diagnosing as much as they're saying they have a duty to warn. But Arash, is this? Is the mental health uh, world different than the physical health world? When when uh, Hillary Clinton had a health issue in her election um, and collapsed and they put her in a van, we had every doctor in the world commenting on it um, and, you know, coming out and, and trying to create diagnoses as well. Is, is, is mental health more sensitive than physical health? I mean, and is it more acceptable? Do you think there will be a day in the future that it will be just as common um, for mental health diagnoses to happen just like we and, – and, we, and worry about the mental health as much as we worry about the physical health of a presidential candidate or president? So uh, I'm an academic psychiatrist, and besides treating patients, I do research. And interestingly, my research is neuroscience and brain research. Hmm. So to me, a physical health and mental health are not different. They're the same thing. Brain is part of the body. Right. Actually, we are researching genetics. We are researching inflammation. All the areas that are involved in physical health are involved in our research of the brain. So in that sense, I don't see a difference between mental health and physical health. When it comes to commenting about, I, I still do not think even uh, any physician, in the, in the example of Hillary Clinton, would make a diagnosis without right. having examined the person. It is irrelevant and unethical to make a you can you may be able to say, hey, you didn't see something scary, right? Yeah. But you cannot make a diagnosis about that person. But they would when comment and say, health, they would say something that? like, Arash, they would say something like, well, I mean, it does seem to fit some of the traits of the diagnosis of X. You know what I mean? Like they, they do oh, yeah, it yeah, yeah. They do it broad enough that she, I mean, you know, uh, a weakness in the legs, neurological neuropathy, blah, blah, blah. They, they'd throw out a bunch of terms that say those are yeah. conditions that could be diagnosed as such. But I guess part of it is furthering the discussion about someone's health when you haven't discuss, you haven't met with them. And honestly, I cannot, I, well, yeah, just some brand, some, uh, potential assumptions of this could be in the category of whatever illness is different than making a, uh, a making a clear job. And the other thing is that when it comes to the mental, I don't actually know how is it going to help. Let's, mm. let's, let's imagine that we are talking about a person who 
may have a mental illness and is dangerous. Why would I don't understand how putting a label on a behavior from a psychiatrist may change it. I mean, the behaviors that they are referring to are behaviors that are open to and visible by every person. Mm-hmm. All the uh, uh, you, you just uh, open the TV and all the political pundits are making all the comments. These are not things that are that require professional psychiatric training to say, hey, I think this person sometimes lies or is irrelevant or the experiences or that, whatever they're looking at. Right. These are not the conditions that need us. And, and me putting a label on it, things, it's not going to change. And I'm actually very uh, eager to see how much of the opinions these uh, comments from psychiatrists may change about the president or about the politics. I'm more worried that they may change the people's thinking about us as a preferred. Because yeah. before this, so during the heat of the debates of the election, I, I, I see patients every day. I see like. 30, 40 patients a week. My patients would come, I would have one patient coming in super excited that, hey, now that I'm not depressed anymore, I have the energy and I can go campaign for Trump. Hmm. And right after that, another patient would come and be complaining about how terrible of a candidate uh, Donald Trump is. So they both felt, saw me as a neutral, reliable, trustworthy person to come and share their emotions, because it's about them, right? Right. Encounter, that clinical encounter is a very sensitive relationship, which is about the patient and not about me. But let's say it becomes a tradition that psychiatrists become part of the politics. Then the patient, before coming to me, has to think, what is my political standing and what I may be thinking? Oh, interesting, the, yeah. The relationship is already super complicated. We have this concept of transference which is the patient in the relationship may transfer feelings and emotions from other relationships onto their therapist. You already have there that. Adding this like, and adding politics is going to make a big mess for us. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and yeah, you don't want to compl- or, or complicate even more the relationship where now they need to identify. I wonder if Arash is a Democrat or a Republican. You know, I just want you to be a professional. I just want you to be really good at what you do. Exactly. And when you are a physician, and, and that's very good that people see us like that. All, and it, it was a very interesting experience for me because during the election time and after election, this is a very emotional year politically. Yeah. People come into my clinic, to my office, and talk to me about their politics. Hmm. And it's, it's interesting. They don't even ask what I think. What is my stance? What is my view? Yeah. And my job is not there to change their political view to that of mine. No, my job there is to help them think and see what is best for them and how they can live a happier life. I think the that's other risk true. is when, when psychiatrists get involved, especially with the history of the stigma of psychiatrists and all these like evil psychiatrists depicted in the movies and in history, right? Right. Like, a, like flying over the cocoa's nest. <laughs> so uh, then... Uh, there's, there's, there's in the minds of some people, well, the, the psychiatrists may be heroes who are now coming out and trying to support their ideology. In the minds of some other people on the other side of the aisle, psychiatrists are now be, becoming evil forces of politics, right? Mm. And then, so basically seen as big brothers who now want to be involved to say who can or cannot do what. But more... more uh, I predict, actually, the more likely outcome would be uh, discrediting us, right? Yeah. 
Oh, right. That we are, yeah, we are not reliable scientific sources. Um, I can't remember his name. It's interesting. Uh, this just came to my mind. Um, one of the top pundits on um, on Fox News is a past psychiatrist um, who uh, was a practicing psychiatrist, MD, and then gave up his practice and got into political um, journalism, basically. And he's I think one of talking about. Charles Krauthammer. Charles right? Krauthammer, yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's interesting, but you almost – and this is maybe what some of the psychiatrists that are putting themselves out there need to decide is do you want to be a medical professional or do you want to be a pundit? Do you want to be a commentator um, and, and then maybe draw the line? Because it seems like what you're saying too, doctors need to also protect their industry as far as the credibility and the ethical code of being a, a true medical doctor. And that may not always jibe when somebody's asking you to make sensational news. Yeah, so, so uh, the issue of the First Amendment, everybody has the right to speech, right? right? So as a person, as a citizen, as a non-professional citizen, I personally feel very comfortable and free to make all political comments that I want to make. Yeah, and when I'm talking to my friends and anyone, that's because that's my right as a person. But when you when I wear my psychiatrist hat, then I have to follow the code of the uh, dress, right? The code of the hat that I'm wearing, right? And, right. Uh, and thinking about advocacy for my field and for the patients. And the whole idea is that even if uh, even if uh, I really also do not believe that these motions are gonna make anyone's changes. Like yesterday, I think there was a hearing at the Congress, right? Mm -hmm. I would be super excited to see how many Republicans went to that meeting and how many Republican conservatives changed their minds about the president. Right. So basically, I think these kind of motions, like a lot of other uh, behaviors uh, in politics, would make a group of people who already are on your side cheer for you and the other side will not like what you're doing. And uh, I and my colleagues and the current presidents and people involved in politics will come and go. What remains and is sacred to me is the, uh, is the, my profession and the, the rights of those with mental illness. Again, we don't need to make a diagnosis for the person. Everybody knows that previous behavior predicts future behavior. Whatever they have seen of this president or anyone else in the past is going to predict how they will behave in the future. That's exactly right, Arash. Thank you, and uh, appreciate your willingness to come on and talk to us uh, about this topic. Really, I think it's important. It's an important topic as we start to discuss and see more mental health issues out there. Arash Javanbach is his name again, uh, board-certified psychiatrist from Wayne State University. We will continue doing what we can on this program, folks, to keep you informed and help you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. You know, um, the more every story, every headline we seem to hear about, the big headlines that come out almost monthly will be somebody with a mental health issue doing something extreme. Uh, a mass shooting, um, you know, driving their car, some over, you know, over and, and, and hitting people, some aggressive, you know, situation where they walk into a workplace and shoot or fire domestic violence issues. And it, mental health is a very real issue. 
And so um, the idea of what we were talking about with politicizing mental health talk is – it's just not going to work. It's not good. If people are truly worried about President Trump's mental health, then um, then great. Democrats go, I guess, have your meeting and bring in a Yale psychiatrist to talk about it that's never met him and never – but can, I guess, predict supposedly based on never having really officially diagnosed him. Um, but more importantly, if if people are worried about it, it ought to be the people around the president that would worry about it and let them bring in their psychiatrist if that's an issue. Now, but what about the health of the country? OK, well, if it ever got there, like uh, Arash was saying, it's going to be obvious the the behaviors will become even more and more and more obvious. And you will start to see um, even more and more signs that some intervention would need to be made. More importantly, though, I think the bigger issue of all of this is that we can't stigmatize mental health. You can't call people crazy or nuts um, because the minute you're doing that, you're you're stigmatizing an issue. You can't make jokes about um, anxiety and depression and PTSD and uh, bipolar and throw out words like he's a schizophrenic or he's bipolar and just be careful with the language. And it's not about political correctness. It's really not. What it's about is trying to in some way normalize the fact that people have mental health issues. And if we can normalize some of this, then we might be able to bring some of these people out of the shadows that need the intervention and need the help but won't get it because it's been so stigmatized. It's hard for people to uh, to come out and admit uh, their their um, their pain and their problems. So, if we want to decrease some of these other headlines and and have mental health reporting a little easier to do and a little easier for other people to go and uh, you know for the for the wellness of the community to be able to report on people with mental health issues then we have to learn to do it in a more respectful way i think and it doesn't mean this isn't about political correctness i mean i know a lot of people would love to make it into that argument some of it is just about decency and respect right it's about if not this becomes the next um, this just becomes the next plague. This becomes the next um, kind of scarlet letter that people have to wear, the mental health letter uh, that you're depressed or that you're anxious or that you're bipolar. And the words we like to just build this label that we can throw on people so we can, I guess, dehumanize them. But wouldn't it be better to just make them human and then make the circle a little bigger to let these humans in and then let's get them the help they need. Let's get them the help they need. Uh, powerful, powerful insights, I think, for all of us as we're trying to make this world a little better. We will continue the journey straight ahead. We'll be talking about uh, some of the, the data about the health of humans in the, on, in, the, in the country. What's going on in one part of the country? Who gets more sleep? Who gets less sleep? Who's healthier in which way? Straight ahead on The Matt Townsend Show. Okay, folks, I, I guess we're calling it a health uh, a health segment, segment, report, analysis, 
whatever you want to call so, it. Fitbit, what is it? Fitbit, the company that yeah. makes those wrist trackers that you see people wearing, they know a lot of data about how we sleep, when we sleep, where we, you know, not necessarily where we sleep, but they kind of know where we sleep too, at least regions of the country. So uh, the company released data collected from six billion hours of sleep information. Wow. Yeesh. So it's pretty, you know. Pretty boring. In, in a very generic way, yeah, it's pretty precise. But that's some great data. So here are the key facts they found. Women sleep on average six hours and 50 minutes a night, 25 minutes longer than men. That a girl. But they're also 40% more likely to suffer from insomnia. So they probably need more sleep. Hmm. Neither group gets anywhere close to the recommended eight hours. Wow. So that's their, their big finding. Women also get about 10 minutes more REM sleep than men do every night, a gap that widens after age 50. Really? It gets worse. When you're 20, you're getting half an hour more deep sleep a night than when you're 70. Oh, bummer. So as you get older, your sleep gets worse. The average American bedtime, what do you think that is? The average American bedtime, I would say, is 1130. For so adults or for kids? Adult. People wearing Fitbits. Mm, not, no, the kid bit fit, Fitbit's not as popular. Uh, <laughs> 1030. 1130. It's 1121. <gasps> yeah. 11.21 p.m. across the nation when that hits, that's when the majority of people go to bed. Interesting. Northerners go to bed five minutes earlier than Southerners. Okay. Those on the East Coast stay up seven minutes later on average than those on the West Coast. And See, they, I always thought they stayed up a lot later. Yeah, and they wake up five minutes earlier. a boy, there you East, go, Coast. East Coast. Meanwhile, those in the northern U.S. go to bed five minutes earlier than those in the south huh. and wake up earlier also. Just some weird tricks. Early to bed, early to rise. You might go to bed at 11 p.m. on weeknights but stay up after midnight on the weekends. Oh, yeah. I do that constantly. True. Yeah. But they say the Fitbit data shows that your sleep suffers as a result. If your bedtime varies by two hours over the week, you'll average a half hour of sleep a night less than someone whose bedtime varies by only 30 minutes. Man, so you got to be consistent. Blasted! And I'm never, I always I'm stay up either. super late on the weekends. I've been trying melatonin. It's mainly out of defiance of having to get up so early every day for this yeah. job. Oh. And then I'm maybe tired coming By the in. way, when you were doing this segment, Oh, Jeff fell asleep. He caught a few winks. He yeah. was actually yawning. Yeah. Jeff's good at like vertical, just like quick micro naps. Yeah. Now, have you noticed that? Yeah. The balance, it's amazing. It is amazing. He He's may, like a horse. He may sway just a little bit back and forth, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. Until he does the head bob. Uh. Once he does the head bob, it throws off his total equilibrium. <laughs> Oh, well, we'll wake up Jeff in a bit, uh, but uh, we're going to continue the journey, folks. So much to cover. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and sleep better. This uh, We're here to serve. We'll be back.